People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Greenwash with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Hope you've had a great week and our number is 2057 for your feedback. Or of course, you can always drop us an email at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Hi, Don. G'day, Jaspreet. Another seven days gone, and um, well, the world's still going around. Hasn't fallen off its axis. Um, apparently, we're frying, but uh, we're boiling now. That's the plan. We're boiling, according to Antonio Guterres. But, you know, in southern Southland, um, it's just fine. I know. I know. It's amazing how often you see, I mean, he's the Secretary General of the United Nations, for anyone who doesn't know who Antonio Guterres is. And man, what uh, what do you call him? He has been pushing this for a while. It's either this global warming or it is racism. Yeah. And of course, this is the latest round of anxiety. He's desiring to put on the gullible. So he's mm-hmm. doing a... He's getting MSN's, uh, MSM's attention, and uh, I've listened to Radio New Zealand today, and it seems to be full of it. Every news item is just, uh, we're, we're like frogs, and we're about to to be boiled. Don, do we need to change the terminology we use? Instead of global warming, shall we follow Mr. Guterres and now start, call it, start calling it global boiling? Yeah. Uh, look, I don't care what we call it. We could call it corruption. Um, it could be. That could be a better term. <laughs> it was interesting. The other day, I watched a, a podcast from Peter Ridd, you know, the guy from Townsville University that was given an ultra hard time by the state in Australia and others uh, saying that the coral reef wasn't, um, you know, the Great Barrier Reef was in rude health, basically. Mm-hmm. And he came in his podcast, uh, I think it was to the IPA in Australia, mm-hmm. the policy um, group think tank over there. He said that, yeah, really, scientists aren't that accountable. If they get it wrong, there's no one sort of gets hurt mm. compared to an engineer who builds a building or builds an aeroplane or something like that. If they get it wrong, lots of people die. And you think about that. Um, 
that's true. Science can uh, be quite dangerous in the wrong hands. And you'd suggest, well, I'd suggest that Guterres and others are playing a very dangerous game. Modeling, Don. You can modeling. get away with anything as long as it's modeling. modeling. It can be the decade of global cooling, switch to global warming, to acid rain, to the UV rays destroying us, to whatnot. Mm. And heavier. Not yep. one of their predictions has come true. So of course, if you believe MSM, we are boiling. But uh, yeah, they not they don't pay. They are absolutely playing fast and loose with public money. Very, very fast and loose. Jobs for mates till the cows come home and no repercussions. No repercussions. And, you know, we try every week, listeners, to not talk about this, but it's front, <laughs> and, it's front and center. I rang the Financial Markets Authority this week just to sort of get a handle on what the top 200 companies have to comply with. What's their reporting for their climate uh, modeling, effectively, their scenario reporting that they have to do? And the guy was, you know, okay to speak to, but he sort of said, why would I want to know? And I said, well, I'm what? a consumer. I yeah. said, um, I want to know what companies I deal with and uh, and what they have to comply with because those costs all come down to me. And he basically said, because well, it, it really is the top 200 companies they're talking about in the country, mm. bank, banks and the like, well, I deal with a bank. Uh, but he was acting like none of this affects the person on the street. Well, sorry, all of the stuff affects the person on the street, the mums and dads paying the bills. So... When I asked him who's going to audit the um, scenarios that they put through uh, in their annual climate reporting, he couldn't tell me. So I don't know how all this is going to work, but guess what? Under the international financial recording standards, they have to um, report their uh, climate credentials and climate scenario. Wasn't the basic, very basic of economics, anyone with half a brain would tell you that if you load on costs to companies, they have to pass them on to their consumer. And we know from 1st of January this year, what has come into action is the Aotearoa New Zealand Climate Standards 1 and the climate-related disclosures. These apply to 200 of our biggest countries, uh, biggest companies, of which Countdown is one, which is why the pressure on farmers, ultimately. But um, Don and I, looked at these standards and disclaimer, neither of us is a chartered accountant to be able to tell you, you know, exactly how they're going to do it. And Don did try calling up the Financial Reporting Authority and asking how they're going to do it. But they say, and I'm quoting these standards that they have, targets 23, an entity must include the following information when describing the targets used to manage climate-related risk and opportunities and its performance against those targets. And what are those? For each greenhouse gas emission target, number one, whether the target is an absolute target or an intensity target, the entity's view, so whichever company this year, the sustainability disclosures are applicable to, their view of how the target contributes to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Number three, the entity's basis for its view that it's just expressed on how 1.5 degrees uh, global warming will be limited to it. So what are these entities going to do, Don? They're going well, to protect the climate, the temperature, 
Hmm. And as I said uh, to this guy, and he, no, he was respectful, I said, um, it's all very subjective. Uh, who, and who, and I repeat, who's going to audit this? And um, I think those questions were um, considered sort of a bit a bit obnoxious, but that's my view. Um, who is going to audit this? I don't trust anyone in these companies to know what the scenarios uh, are like. I think you have more knowledge about the scenarios, likely and highly unlikely and and probable sort of scenarios, the RCP ratings that we talk about. We know about it, but they're all, as I understand it, working on 8.5, the most unlikely scenario. That's my thinking at the moment. That's where they're heading. So if there are some accountants listening this morning, and if you'd like to come on on Greenwashed and share with us, Don, with me and Don, how this is going to happen in your profession, we will give you a very, very patient hearing. We'd be very interested in knowing how the scenario analysis, because it's not just 1.5 degrees that these companies have to show how their targets will help limit the warming. The other one is a three degree Celsius or a greater climate-related scenario and a third climate-related scenario. So I don't know. So they are even wanting you to get some sort of an amazing crystal ball figure out that it might go to three degrees and what you're going to do. So they want you to turn into, I don't know, Don, a meteorologist, a climate scientist, a geologist, all of those fields and physics comes into oh, this. Let's hope they go to physics fairly well, fairly early in the piece because they've got to have what's called science-based targets. And of course, you've just mentioned that. <laughs> now, that was my key point, Jasper, and I know I didn't make it very clear. Who's going to audit those science-based targets? Because clearly there is so many differing points of view, uh, there is no consensus on this stuff, uh, to, to use the term. Um, and so I just think it's um, virtue signaling of the highest order. And and as we know, as farmers, um, some of the entities that have food going through them or processing are going to try and sheet home large amounts of their emissions profiles inside the farm gate or the processor. Uh, so that the retailer gets off sort of, yeah, I understand how that plays. But at the moment, uh, for instance, in ruminant agriculture, animal agriculture is getting screwed because the metrics are all completely wrong. So with broken record stuff from us, but I just find it, uh, I almost find it humorous that we're doing this. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I am really looking forward to looking at, you know, most of these large entities have to provide publicly their financial reports. I am going to have a field day next year, having a look at how they've done the scenario analysis, how that science has been peer reviewed, and uh, yeah, what not. And changing tack, it was I've been watching a little bit of Sky News Australia, and of course the other night I saw Peter Credlin's show, and Tony Seabrook was on. You know the pastoralist and graziers guy we had on about a month ago, talking about the uh, Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act stuff. Well, in Western man, Australia, mm. has he turned Western Australia politics upside down? Um, it was interesting to see uh, the, the the petition he's got running as is the the largest in the West's history. So, uh, and of course, it's happening at the time when Al Anthony Albanese is trying to get the voice concept up and over the line. And of course, this has done everything but advance the cause of the voice vote in Western Australia. So, and. My point in all this is activism 
uh, from farmers, if you get feel you're being squeezed into a corner and your property rights are being screwed, which you know you should all be feeling that, but sadly in New Zealand we're quite passive. Uh, in Western Australia, they're not passive and they are taking it head on. And um, I think they're making a big difference. So big lesson for New Zealand farmers, start standing up for your property rights because you haven't for a long time. And I really enjoyed our show last week and going by the feedback, so did listeners. We have uh, a message from Linda loving this interview with Hans, Hans Baimon, the horticulturalist we had from Central Otago. and. Yeah, well, well, Hans, Hans has been good. He's even given us more names to interview from, from the Netherlands and Europe. So fantastic. Yep. And Terry, Terry Bote, for anyone who missed that interview last week, that was our first politician from the Northern Hemisphere. And Terry did not mince his words at all, speaking about what's happening in Holland to you know, be it the farmers or be it the urban population being moved into the tri-city and those massive developments, high-density urban housing come and how nationalism. In fact, I think before I expand on it, let us cut to a soundbite here from Terry from his interview last week and see how he describes what nationalism means for him. So really, uh, the question is, what does nationalism really mean for you, Terry? What does it really mean? Yes, yes, I think that's a very uh, important question. Um, nationalism is the opposite of globalism. And it is the uh, expression of a community to self-govern, to live by their own rules, their own standards, to to make decisions on their own, to be able to repeal or change decisions, to to have uh, a public debate that actually leads to something that may lead to a decision that may lead to changes in policies. Uh, so a nation or a nation state uh, is a, a self-governing unit. And that is, I think, an expression of freedom. So globalism is irreconcilable with freedom. It's impossible to have both a global bureaucracy and freedom. Uh, it's, it's, it's either or, it's, it's this or that. And I'm, I'm very much on the side of freedom, but most, uh, most institutions, most, most large institutions, most multinational corporations, the the, um, the the supranational organizations, the big banks, the, the the global think tanks, they all they're all aligned towards this this globalist dystopia, this globalist ideal that um, that is coming to us in, in, at a very high pace, very rapid pace. Wasn't that amazing? He did. He just laid it out out there. You should be able to govern your own lives. Yep. You take, should be the master of your own fate. Take back control. That's what it's about. Take back control. Because you've actually, um, in, in many instances, you've given it away without even knowing. Yep. Uh, that's the problem. And New Zealand has certainly not been immune to that happening. And it's gathered a pace the last six or seven years. So uh, we we need to take heed of it if you want to. If you want to have sovereignty and you value the country, um, 
it's about standing tall. It is. It is about standing tall. I think uh, we should bring on our first guest for the morning today after this one. But Don and I will be back after a break. For now, our guest is uh, a young lady we caught up with a few nights back. Finia Phillips is her name. And uh, Finia was the winner in in one of the major categories in the Dairy Industry Awards for her region this year. So we'll be back in a minute. Thank you for joining us this morning. Our text number is 2057 or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed on RCR with Don and Jaspreet. And continuing the theme of um, having someone from the land speaking with us, we've got Finya Phillips. Now, Finya is a dairy farmer, former vet. Uh, she's been the Auckland Hauraki Dairy Manager of the Year and also third in the national title for that. So highly credentialed young lady um, giving us some time. I know she's been up very early today carving. So uh, welcome to RCR Greenwash, Finya, and um, tell us a wee bit more about yourself. 27, trained as a vet. Yeah, where did you grow up? Uh, um, thank you very much for a, um, a nice intro there, Don and Jasper. Um, yeah, I grew up in the Hauraki Plains, which is on uh, the top of the North Waikato. Um, yeah, born and raised on a small family dairy farm. Um, it was just always in our blood um, to be on the farm. And uh, yeah, I'm one of three kids. We all helped mum and dad before and after school. And it was just a really big part of um, how, how we grew up, I suppose. Hmm. So the love of the land and the animals is what uh, stayed with you all through schooling. And um, you ended up at university at vet school. So that's a fast track right through your career all to perhaps what about eight, year eight when you're 18 or so you went to vet school was it 18 or 20 yeah yeah I was actually pretty young I was 17 when I went oh. um had to forge my own ID when I went clubbing um but yeah that <laughs> no, was a good time at Massey and yeah it was I'm so thankful for the experience it's um the friendships that you made out of that and the skills and the knowledge and probably Above all, maybe the problem solving and the critical thinking. I think that particularly in today's society is quite an important skill. Um, yeah, I, I was such a good time. And yeah, those um, those learnings will carry on with me forever. Um, and yeah, then I started vetting down in South Canterbury um, in a really good part of the world. It was a little place called Waimati or Waimati, where they have lots of wallabies. And um, there's more than just wallabies there. There's some pretty awesome people and some very driven, progressive dairy farmers. And, um, yeah, I yeah, was absolutely fizzing about it all. I, I loved it, loved it there, and had a really good boss, Ryan Luckman. He was really awesome to work with. And, yeah, we I learned a lot. And, um, yeah, we had quite big numbers and. I suppose for vetting, um, numbers is how you get good at things, <laughs> but also is a stress of, of things as well, I suppose. But, uh, um, yeah, it was a really awesome experience. And the farmers there, they were very progressive and um, always wanting to push the boat out and think about how could we do things better. And, yeah, it was a really cool 
experience. And so I was there for three and a half years. And then my husband had a unique opportunity to um, come up to Auckland. And probably at that stage, it was sort of a similar uh, thinking for me, I suppose, that I was starting to think about what is my world going to look like um, soon, I suppose, that um, the reality that I was looking to what my life would look like as having a young family or um, hopefully having a family, I suppose. Um, how would that look and how does it all fit in the farming scene? And, yeah, that's when I, um, I suppose, committed to going dairy farming after vetting. So, and so just to, just interrupt there, and is, it, is it correct that you are bonded uh, to a veterinary practice when you finish your studies? Do you have to stay in New Zealand and, and get bonded to any specific, into the career choice, like veterinary um, practice somewhere? Is that still the, still the case? Yeah, so that's um, called the Rural Bonding Scheme, um, and it's a, ele- an elective um, scheme, I would say. It's actually from the... Um, the government that they recognised quite a long time ago has probably been at least um, 10, 15 years, I'd say, where um, it's been really difficult to get um, vets into rural sectors that mm-hmm. they tried to incentivise vets going into rural practice as opposed to urban practice. Um, and it's an elective thing that if you choose to do it, then you get a uh, a bit of a bonus, I suppose, for being in there. Uh, but you have to do a minimum of three years to get it. And then if you did a fourth year and a fifth year, you would get it as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Good, because I, I, I remember it was around when I was in the big city, Wellington, they were talking about it and it was sort of in that put in place. And I just wondered if it was still continuing. So, hey, that's that's a good um, overview of the early early days. But you've, you've gone gone dairy farming and um obviously you've won these awards and uh all credit to you um you don't win awards for um having other people do the work for you so uh, it's, it's your it's all for you and now you're progressing into um by the look sound of it um your your, your parents farm is that right and yeah. taking over taking over that so you've made the career choice you've made the jump and um You've obviously decided that it's easier to raise a family uh, as a dairy farmer than a vet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's easier is the right word. Perhaps more, slightly more delusional. I don't know. Um, no, it's just I think probably everyone has different values in what how they want to do things. But having come from a dairy farm upbringing and the the time we were able to spend with mum and dad alongside um, and. I suppose the opportunities that uh, rural living provides that you just can't get anywhere else. And um, pardon me, um, I just kept coming back to that, that um, dairy farming is so similar to vetting in so many ways um, that particularly while um, children are young, I think it's really important to spend time with them and have them have them around. Um, and it's not to say I won't stop being a vet because I think that vet brain carries on forever unfortunately but um yeah I'm not like opposed to the idea later on into getting into the realm of consultancy or something like that um but I think for now just trying to be realistic about how many hours are in the day which I seem mm. to struggle with anyway <laughs> but when you had won the award it was on another farm that you were working about 450 cows 190 hectares yeah. Tell us a bit more about your parents' farm that you've recently moved to. What's that like? 
Um, yeah, it's uh, it was an awesome farm where I actually worked for. I was working for some shear milkers, um, Amber and Fraser Carpenter, and they were a real pleasure to work alongside and gave me a lot of scope and support. It was a really good role. Um, but yeah, I was pretty getting pretty conscious that dad is 60 and still doing it day in, day out. Um, so we've on the family dairy farm, we've got 200 cows and yeah, everything is done ourselves. Dad is very reluctant to get in. He just doesn't get in labor, um, or any staff and yeah, does it three, six, five days a year, which is pretty incredible. Um, Mum helps with calf rearing and is yeah really good support network for them. But I was just getting conscious that mum and dad are um, getting on and that it's really important to start making these decisions early. Um, and yeah, I'm, I suppose we're calling it the golden years because um, we're all still very active in how we want to do things. So it's good. Are your siblings as well? You've got two others, I believe. Are they also in the rural sector somewhere? Yeah, so um, my sister, she is a compliance manager at um, uh, Meatworks down in um, Otago. And yep. yeah, it we're interesting to see where it goes for her. She yeah. still definitely has the rural blood in her. And my brother, he's um, doing an engineering um, qualification down in Canterbury as well. Um, and he will always help for sure but he's probably got interests elsewhere but yeah it's really important for our family as we kind of navigate through these next steps is that it's fair for everyone and that everyone's um, participating and being valued and yeah that's just an open kind of evolving picture how it all goes and your husband is he part of the farming as well uh no or does he uh, my husband, we met at vet school, which was a classic mm. case of inbreeding, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, so he is a vet, um, but he's becoming a um, a specialist, which basically um, he's becoming a surgeon. So, if you you know, when you go to the a human doctor and then you have an orthopaedic problem, they'd refer you to an orthopaedic specialist. That is the equivalent of what my mm-hmm. husband is becoming. Um, so, yeah, that's why part of the move while we moved from Canterbury to Auckland so that he could do this. So he's um, not a part of the farming operation, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, no, he's, um, that's a good point, actually. He's um, an amazing husband and a really good support network, but um, he has expressed that he doesn't actually want to be milking cows, and that's quite okay. And uh, it's a really important thing for us to consider as we move forward that we need to make sure that we find a balance that um, we're not actually pulling them into the cow shed that... um, we've got to find ways of doing it ourselves unless you have specialist orthopedic problems yes that's right that's right (laughs) yeah that's true well you've got you've got your lives very well organized at at a young age i wish uh yeah i can't say the same and i'm a lot older so good work um telling us tell us a little bit about uh what really uh enthralls you in the dairy industry i mean we all know that well most people know that cows produce milk but there's a whole lot of technology and new ideas that are coming uh, becoming available that make life a whole lot better easier. smarter and easier um what are what are the what are the best of those that you can t- tell us about uh yeah that's a really good question um and but firstly i'd like to say i don't think we're very organized at all we're just fumbling our way through life just <laughs> like everyone else and 
it might appear that we've got a plan, but we really don't. We're just paddling. And I think it's just all part of life, isn't it, that it's a journey and you kind of make, you go down a route and then you tweak and adjust and that's just the nature of life. So, yeah, I'm it's... the first to say that we are not organised. <laughs> Um, we're uh, just the, trying our best, but um, well, the, the world had uh, the world um, isn't one straight road. There's lots of twists and turns, so yeah, it's all part of it. You're right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but going back to your earlier question, um, yeah, what I suppose enthralls me, um, there's there's two things. I suppose one is I love seeing happy cows, and I think we can't spread happy cows far and wide enough because um, it's yeah, it's an interesting realm that we're in in society at the moment that, um, yeah, it, people may not see the hours and hours that go into caring and careful decision-making and planning and feed budgeting and tweaking. And every single day when you're getting the cows out of the paddock and getting them through the shed, you're watching them all the time and you care so much about them. So, um I love seeing happy cows because I think it's a reflection of who you are as a farmer. And I think this is a really exciting space to be in is to just actually showcase this to the world, like transparently, this is what we do and we do it really well. So that I think is a really cool space to be in because um, it's like anything, isn't it? You either see, are you a problem maker or a problem solver? And I love showing happy cows because it is a good product, I think. But in terms of, um, exciting technology. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, technology and probably New Zealand's quite a slow adopter compared to different parts of the world. Um, but probably one of my uh, personal favourites is like a wearable type of technology, which just helps us make better decisions about how we're feeding our cows. Because if we are feeding our cows properly, because they're Olympic athletes, basically, they perform not only production, but um, in all other parameters, and then that is just a positive flow-on effect. So if we can un positively understand what's happening with our cows, we can tweak it and adjust because there's just so much more information that you can't see um, to the visual eye that technology can. So, yeah, so that explains it. I mean, it, you're making it sound like a fashion accessory, um, <laughs> and I'm sure it's, it's highly, highly techno technological. Uh, what are these things that can um, give you the – with the sensors, I suppose, that give you the the feedback that says that cow is running a temperature or or something like that. Um, what are, what are they? What are they? What are they come like? Are they a whole something that you put around the neck or you yeah. strap them to the girth or what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's um, different types of technologies, I suppose, and so I'm quite careful not to pitch any particular brand. Um, everyone can choose what they see fit, but sure. they, they come in different products, either something that you can put into the air um, or it literally looks like a necklace and has a little transponder that's um, over the side of the esophagus, which is where they ruminate. Or they can have an intraruminal bolus. That's not particularly big yet in New Zealand, but it's really big overseas. Um, so in New Zealand, predominantly, you'd see an air tag type of product or a necklace type of product. Um, we we personally decided to go for Allflex, um, mm -hmm. which is a product that I suppose I became most familiar with when I was vetting down in South Canterbury. Um, and that was a really big space because um, 
farmers were learning how to use a product. We as vets were learning how to interpret the product. And it was just a really cool time to all learn together how do we interpret this information and how do we maximise our cow health. Um, yeah, it was such a good learning experience. And I suppose that's where I personally had a lot of um, experience and knowledge from that that's why our family um, decided to go for all flex collars as well. And, um, yeah, they're really, I'm really happy with them. Do you use uh, natural mating or do you use AI in, in your farm or your uh, we use, farm? We use AI and it's been, um, we've always done that. Um, but it's also removed the need for bulls because we can be really certain about when a cow is on heat and um, it, not having bulls on farm is also just a major time and sanity saver as well <laughs> as I'm sure you um, are very well aware they are oh, gosh yes I, we have started now on our farm we last two seasons we've been using the drone with the oh, bulls yes. and it's so much easier to move them because we could have upwards of 30 over yeah. 1200 cows at different yeah. rotating teams and gosh that's just health and safety and the whole thing is just that much easier and yeah. they move very calmly you know they're otherwise some of the jersey bulls we tail with Gosh, they are high strung. <laughs> uh, for, for for our listeners, we should say that um, a, a pack of bulls, like thirty in a, in a in a paddock, is like um, the Australian and New Zealand rugby teams fighting each other. It's uh, it's more than just a scrum. It's not a, it's not something you want to get part of. So you, know, you can the, hear them a kilometer away. I can for the oh, yeah. listeners, it, it isn't something you want to get amongst. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I understand why you'd go for AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's good to actually explain it. It's good to explain it. Yeah. No, it's been um technology is a massive um turning point for us. And I think it's going back to we talked about earlier, are we problem solvers or problem makers? And um there is just so much scope within the farming sector, whether it's dairying or sheep and beef or deer, anything. Um the technology can really help us and it can help us from a compliance perspective that we don't have to fill in so much paperwork, which I think is great, but also in terms of a transparency for a consumer that they can see what we do. But also just generally, operationally, we have so many more options to be, um, yeah, I, I suppose, optimising our business and be more profitable, which is ultimately, that's why we get out of bed, right? We've got to be able to put food on the table. Finia, uh, I read somewhere that you had spoken, this is a quote from you, I think, that when I was at school, we were all proud to be dairy farming kids. But nowadays, people feel sheepish and like they can't tell the story. We need to turn this around and have to show that farming is a career to be proud of. I couldn't agree more, but I'm definitely interested in you know, your reflections and how do you think the public image of farming has changed? And I, I realize you're just 27. I have a good 20 years in you. But how do you think it has changed from the time you were growing up? Yeah, it's um, it's I genuinely couldn't have said it any more different. You know, it's mm. when we were at school, um, everyone came from dairy farming families, and um, everyone knew what calving time was because everyone was out grabbing calves and helping mum and dad, and it was just a really big part of who we were. And then as everyone went through life, um. Yeah, now people are drinking drinking oat milk because mm. they're worried about the impact of dairy cows. Emissions. Yeah. yeah, and on it's a really complicated topic, but it's also we deserve to be heard about what we do. And firstly, 
Um, it's really important, A, I think, to showcase what we do and be open. And that takes a bit of courage. It takes courage to actually tell our story because we know that people will attack us or have questions. And so it takes courage to do that. But you know that you have to because otherwise our story will never get out. But then it's hard because if people aren't actually listening to to you or have already got their preconceived ideas, it's um, really tough to then make some headway. And I suppose I don't want to yeah get doom and gloom about it, but I suppose mm-hmm. it's just what what can we do to actually change the narrative around this? And it means if if we acknowledge where our society is at the moment, we just need to change the narrative and show how much care goes into this product it's the milk that you see in the fridge when you buy it has more care than I would say your car manufacturer has made your Toyota sitting in the garage (laughs) but people don't really ask the same types of questions for that they just accept it you know a biological process is so much harder to manage than a um, mechanical process so um, yeah that's a good analogy uh, Finya Uh, and it's interesting I, I think uh, our politicians have a lot to answer for the way they've not defended um, the cause the way they need to because it's not politically safe to to play in this this space that we're talking about. But someday, in my view, the the pointy end is coming to this. We're going to actually have to bury the hatchet and get over it, and um, and farming is going to have to be held up. As 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 it should be, and as something that's really important uh, to the country. I mean, I. I, I listen, and you may have it around your area. A lot of people are sort of talking about you know, keeping things local, yeah. but we're an export economy. If we had 70 million people in New Zealand, we we could do this buy local stuff all the time, but we don't get hospitals and schools out of um, just trading locally. <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and so, look, we've got to be an export country, but it is about I, – I can sense um, – yeah, that you're going to be one of the leaders that will hold this, hold the end of farming up really well. And to me, it's about data, and I think you'd probably agree with that data and um, understanding how that measurement all works. Now, we constantly talk about this on the show uh, about the emissions that are being constantly sheeted home inside the farm gate yeah. unfairly and uh that's one thing that i hope um that for your benefit uh, and your generation's benefit we can bury that thing for good and so uh get it off the off the table but look it's much more than farming in your life um you've done other stuff as well i think we should talk about that um, yeah. um for instance you've walked to the south island league of the tro trail um what brought that on because that's a fairly big deal um there's a bit of risk involved in that <laughs> um yeah there there was actually um i suppose i thought it was a really cool way to see new zealand um like real backyard new zealand um but also um yeah i became pretty it was maybe 10 days into it that I thought I should really be um, fundraising for something because this is Mm. a really worthy cause. And so I started fundraising for the Rural Support Trust, which is a pretty, um, uh, I suppose, a charity that hits close to home, I suppose, with where the rural sector is. Um, Yeah, kind of going along all these things that we've talked about, it's really easy for farmers to 
feel really isolated just generally geographically where they are and their work hours but um in a headspace as realm realm as well and so i think it's really important that we support rural support trust who's doing some really good things um out there in the community i i couldn't agree more we recently out here uh, in arctic of the woods we had a mental health event we had jason herrick craig wiggins and a few others come down because mental health is is going down the gurgler as most of us know i also wonder finna how much were you exposed to the whole mycoplasma thing at where you in canterbury at that time when the whole fiasco and the associated i'm sure not just the fiscal fallout but also the mental turmoil yeah. that people were you there on the front lines at that time um, uh, i i moved down there in um early 2019 and mm-hmm. by that stage the bulk of the culling had happened but um yeah it was just the i suppose the aftermath as well and that's um yeah it was a really horrible time for farmers that were there and they it's like lots of things isn't it that cows are more than just a number or four legs in the paddock that you think they they your progeny or you've worked so many generations to get them where they are and then um yeah it was it was what it was but it was um yeah it was pretty hard to see how um how hard it had hit some farmers um so yeah i think it it just shows why we need to have a really good um trust like rural support trust out there helping our farmers because um people need to have a trustworthy person that can yeah. relate to them as well yeah i could agree more i have a mate in canterbury his farmers amongst the very first to be you know detected mycoplasma bovis his father farmed there and the entire farm was destroyed and you know even though he kids that he swapped his south talent herd with a earlier calving north talent herd five years later the scars are still there and yeah. as he says i don't think him and his dad will ever get over it yeah. the, and many people urban or even rural i think don't realize because we keep talking about this divide and i think it's deliberately created Yeah. media also has their part to play but those cars run deep they don't just you know don't just forget it once you've got a brand new herd yeah no that's right that's right it's just the the i i know and i'm sure i mean i suppose i just talk from a dairy farming perspective but i'm sure it's for different farming businesses as well they all have their little personalities and you have their your favorites and um yeah it's just it's so much more than just four legs in the paddock that if a decision gets made like that um mm. yeah it, it really hurts so yeah no it, it was a tricky time and i suppose it is yeah i suppose moving onwards it is just really important for people i think to take away that people farmers really care about their stock they really care about the land and most importantly they actually really care about their people the um the way that they look after their family or their staff how it all works because it's it's not actually just a job it's a way of life Yeah, and there's a uh, good peer pressure um by the best performers they they certainly do put that that um uh you can see the best performers uh, and you know who's looking after their staff the best you can sort of see it all and it it hopefully flows on to others because we do you know in the last 20 years there's been lots of negativity around people that aren't being perhaps remunerated correctly or 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 housed correctly but look good dairy farm boss good dairy owners um uh they they have good relationships with their staff and their animals so and finya you're just um an epitome of it you've got it all sorted i think at quite a young age 
So oh, I don't know about that. It's just a, 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 a constant evolving process and we're all just learning as we go. Yeah. yeah. So just as an aside, last perhaps point is um, you've, you've got third in the national title for the dairy managers. Um, are you committed to helping uh, for the next round of uh, competition? Do they bring you in as a, as a facilitator now? Is that part of the game? <laughs> um, committed is probably a, a interesting way to describe it, but um, it's like strongly encouraged to right. carry on the right. the themes. Right. Um, but I'm happy to do that because it's all part yeah. of community involvement and keeping it going. And I like I honestly didn't even know about the dairy industry awards um, probably until like the last couple of years. And I know it's been a really big awards that's been going on for a really long time. But um, I think it's a really cool thing to be a part of and to support and encourage in others that um, the reason that we participate is, A, as an individual that you learn and grow from the experience, but B, that we just positively show what we do and that we're in this not just because of a job, this is a way of life and we're really passionate about what we do and we have to showcase this. And it's hard. It's we've I've talked about it earlier. It takes a bit of courage to put yourself out there in the limelight and potentially be scrutinised. But I think on the whole, most people are very receptive and supportive and uh, wanting you to excel in whatever that looks like. And I think that's probably been uh, something that I've loved out of the whole process is the networking and the people that, um, are there to help you and just yeah they just want to just see you thrive and it's just awesome to have all these different cheerleaders in different parts of the world or different parts of the country that are just out there with you which is really cool well i'm really pleased that you've had experience in the south island um as well because that actually counts for quite a bit um it's one key point that i used to try and imp- imp- sort of make an impact about was that New Zealand isn't a flat plate. It doesn't have the same uh, rainwater, um, rain hitting it every day. It hasn't got the same soil types. It hasn't got the same gradient. That's and yet right. there are there are plenty of people who think that they can make blanket rules that fit everybody. Now, you shouldn't need rules. That's, yep. my, that's my base level. You shouldn't need rules. Um, but we've got a got a system that says we love making rules. But anyway, um, yeah, I think it's a key point. You have had experience in the South Island. You've had experience in um, uh, sort of a, on the flats of Natia and elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, there's a dose of reality in you, in you, and you'll bring that to everything you do. Um, and you know, on top of all that, you've got this on your CV forever, um, <laughs> and you 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 probably want um, to go even further um, as a farm owner. You might enter other competitions. So. Um, all power to you and and your husband and your families and uh, I don't know Jasprit I think uh, we should draw this to a close and absolutely get, we, get we we did Finn promise to get day, yeah to get Finia back in time back so that her next day is not uh, hampered thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time today I know you are halfway through carving up there uh, Finia whereas we have barely begun all yeah, the best. Best. Further, no I believe it's it's your first season back on the family farm, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, all all the very best. Here's hoping it all goes really well for you, and we'll be looking out for your name. Thank you so oh. much for joining us today on Greenwashed. No worries, thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. 
You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back. You're with Greenwashed. I'm Jasprit Boparai, and out here with Don Nicholson this morning. I hope you enjoyed the chat with uh, Finia Phillips, the winner of uh, the Farm Manager of the Year for Auckland Horaki, and she was also third in the national competition. Certainly mm. gives one hope to see people with her passion. Yeah, great to see young people um, take up farming, let alone uh, having the passion she's got for it. Mm. And uh, she's got an infectious personality, uh, so she'll go a long way. Um, clearly, yeah. clearly dedicated to the cause. And uh, like everything in the world, she knows that uh, things evolve. Some yeah. things evolve for the better and some for the worse. But hopefully and, and it's all uphill for her. Uh, so, a, sorry, hopefully very... it's all... Yeah, yeah. Downhill for her. Down, downhill <laughs> is what I'm meaning to <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I did pick up on one thing that you said, that one has to be brave when you are, you know, sticking your neck out and uh, talking about the profession and being proud of what you do and all the decision-making and be able to tell the story. Because that's what we are suffering right now, isn't it? A pandemic of spinelessness. Yeah, you you need to defend your corner uh, wisely. That's for mm. sure. You, you can't be crazy about it. But I look at Tony Seabrook in Western Australia, as we talked about earlier. Uh, he he is passionate about property rights and fee simple. And no one crosses that boundary into his property right unless they've got his invitation. And mm. that is key. Most people are coming into our properties these days. It doesn't matter whether it's urban or rural. And they're coming in uninvited. And, you know, some of the stuff's coming back to me from my time in Wellington that I used to talk like uh, the same thing. And here I am, 15 years old almost, and uh, talking the same language. I thought, gee, did I, was I on the money then or was I just, am I a bit of a laggard and just behind the times? But 2023, it's it's more clear to me now than ever that the property rights uh, that we thought we had are under serious, serious threat in this country. Yeah. yeah. And so, so for that's the likes no of different. That's hmm. no different from what we had Terry Bode talking about, about farmers being moved off their land in Holland and people yeah. being moved into high density apartments. And that sort of brings me to another feedback we had from someone here last week. Hi, guys. Thank you for your show. I want to see if there's you have more proof of the link between, you know, government policies, Agenda 2030 and smart cities so we can educate our local citizens and councils. Are you able to point us in the direction of reliable, documentable facts to substantiate this and which cannot be just, uh, you know, thrown away like uh, being a conspiracy? and even more historic records, which might be public, are showing the globalist agendas. Now, this is from the name is just given as Parsons. No, Rachel. So, Rachel. Rachel's her first name. Okay, Rachel yeah. Parsons. Mm. Right, Rachel. We've been talking about this for a while, and you know, all of this 
control over our lives, the terminology differs from country to country. If you're in London, it might be the ULEZ by Sajid Khan, the ultra-low emission zones. It might be quiet streets here. It might be the safer streets here. It might be the Transport Choices uh, program by NZTA, which is which says it's giving you choices, and yet you are having these uh, cycleways and others being built indiscriminately, while existing infrastructure is not being even maintained. So it is, you know, it is not just one thing. I know that's not what you asked for. But to be able to, as Don often calls this, he calls this a hydra. And that's what it is. It's a, I've referred to this agenda as a Medusa in the past, a multi-headed uh, monster. Because its tentacles are everywhere in your life, from what you eat or you will be allowed to eat to where you'll be allowed to live. But uh, I recently saw what was, it was a community board in the Tasman District Council somewhere, one of the community boards, uh, and I think that should be public uh, interview. Uh, it should be a public interview, shouldn't mm. it be done? Because uh, if it it's was a council... Mochuaika, wasn't it? Mochuaika? Mochuaika? Mm. I will just double check because I saw this on uh, YouTube the other day. Yep, the Mochuaika community board. So I saw their recording of 18th July, 2023. And this is available as a public, uh, you know, video on the Tasman District Council Meetings YouTube channel. I'll repeat that. That's the Tasman District Council Meetings. These four words make up the name of the YouTube channel. And there you have some uh, people talking to their uh, publicly elected representatives about things that are worrying them about... Uh, these cycleways and others and how they are going to affect their way of life. So this is pretty public information. And did you have a look at that video, Don? I did. I did. And obviously there was a um, concern that uh, there's so much other stuff needs to happen in Mochuaca before this stuff mm. happens. And the lady that I saw uh, was very, very passionate and strong in her delivery. Mm. And she was followed by a guy who I thought um, was setting it up to be um, a climate alarmist. But no, this guy was putting up a whole lot of graphs to show that what a lot of councillors may be seeing around the country are, in fact, graphs on climate and sea level rise and the like, temperatures, um, mm. are short on data because of their time span. Often they might take a, um, a, a graph can alter its appearance if you alter its start date by 50 years. And of course, that's what's happened in a lot of cases. They've, they've taken out the, the bits that show the less effect and then they've ex that were not alarmist yeah they've exaggerated the uh, that's yeah. the short term i'm, I'm so that's, surprised that's what's don if i'm looking at the tasman district council meetings youtube channel they only have 15 subscribers and this particular recording of the machuaka community board from 18th of july in eight days 10 days it has had like less than 100 views so that's People are not really engaging, are they? They are not engaged yet. And it, it is the bugbear of the New Zealand way. We are quite blasé about stuff. Um, there's people that are passionate and they make a lot of noise, uh, but 
once you leave those council chambers, uh, basically you've you're, you've gone again. And I've noted that for more any time I submitted. You you do your bit. You mm. submit, which is a stupid term, as I keep saying, submission. And you do your objection or your input, I should call it. And once you leave the chamber uh, and the council, you know, speaking to the councillors, you're basically forgotten about. I mean, I, I think, I'm sorry, I know you're a councillor, but you feel like you go in there, you vent your spleen, you go out and they say, oh, well, at least he's, Don's happy now, he's vented his spleen, off he goes home, and that's the last you hear of it. You don't look. I gave a very passionate submission to the South and Water and Land Plan in 2015. Front page of the South and Times, completely ignored by the council, completely ignored. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. I talked about the billion dollar loss of equity of value of the Southland sheep and beef farm. Mm. No one cared. A billion dollars wiped off effectively the value. Easily provable, easily provable, completely ignored by Environment Southland. Yeah. And it's there's going to be a whole lot of that mm. coming ahead, as we have seen with these recent meetings in the last week uh, with Groundswell on the yep. freshwater plants. Yes, that. And VFF has done a great job um, on the things they're passionate about. Groundswell done a great job on the things they're passionate about. But it's about nailing things to the mast, making them stick for the long haul, not giving the regulator the chance to say, we'll give them a bit of a carrot over here and they'll go away and we won't hear from them again. You've got to make this stuff stick. And mm. we're not doing that as a, as, as a society. Because so many people are actually getting their lifeblood from other other hardworking taxpayers, actually. That's the problem. Yeah. And uh, talking of private property rights, that is still, you know, one step below the right to free speech. Yeah. If once you lose that, it's, it's all gone. And today, listeners, is the D-Day for you to be able to defend your free speech by putting in, and I will not use the word that don't that triggers don't off, <laughs> by putting in an objection to these online censorship laws that the government has planned. Now you can go to defendfreespeech.co.nz and have a look at the template there. Today is the last day you can do this, so please note the urgency here. In a page straight out of the Orwellian 1984 novel, the government is creating a ministry of truth that will oversee the creation of various codes dictating what online platforms channel can say or not. Don, your and my days might be numbered. Well, um, if I, based on some of the uh, subjective things I've read in here, so might MSN. MSM, sorry, if I have my mm. way, because I find some of the things they uh, report are, are obnoxious and um, lacking objectivity um, and sort of creating an emotional destabilization of my um, my space. So perhaps I've got a right to say I want MSM shut down. Sorry, I'm being facetious. That's how stupid this stuff is. Yep. Um, Reality Check Radio and the stuff that Jasper and I talk about, uh, we're if we're a bit out there, we get taken out. Just doesn't seem fair, does it? So it's not fair and it just can't happen. So constructive input's required. Constructive input Absolutely. today, today, by midnight tonight. 
by midnight tonight. Monday, the 31st July, today, midnight. So you have another half a day if you're a night owl like me. Otherwise, mm-hmm. just a few hours if you meet an early bedtime. So this new regulator that they want, the super regulator, it's going to make up its own rules. It's going to define what is sane, safe, sane, and harmful content, and which we all need protecting from. You know, some of you might be triggered by what Don and I say. You might need to be made to feel safe somehow. I think psychoanalysts would have a field day after um, our shows, um, Jess Preet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but, but it is it is weird, isn't it? Um, to removing high risk content that is unsafe or harmful, and then it goes on to talk about how um, online platforms that are hosting objectionable content and failure to adequate, adequately respond uh, can lead uh, to their objectionable uh, objectionable yeah. content. Uh, failing to adequately respond can lead to fines of up to two hundred thousand dollars. I mean, what's what's the what gives there? What gives? So I'm looking at the you know consultation document that's on the Department of Internal Affairs website, DIA, and they call this the Media and Online Content Regulation. They want to deliver safer media platforms that will be modern, flexible, and simple and easier for users to navigate. But when I look at the tab that says why this reform was needed, It says that the digital media and the rise of new content platforms, that's us, John, Hmm. has resulted in a significant increase for the New Zealanders, the potential to be exposed to harmful content. This was further made evident by the live streaming of the Christchurch terror attack video. So we are going back to 2018, five years. Current content regulators were designed around the traditional ideas of, you know, analog publications, newspapers, books, nothing live, and so on. And we now need an approach for online streaming content. So, Ministry of Truth. Yes, and of course, it's got our former Prime Minister stamping herself uh, or making a mark for herself all around the world on this 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 stuff. She's so, um, so kind and so just. Uh, but I, I was losing my uh, place before where I talked about the harmful content, and I've now got the spot again. Um, it's where the experience of content causes loss or damage to rights, property, or physical, social, emotional, and mental well-being. Being harmed is distinct from feeling offended, although content that is harmful will often cause offence. Mm-hmm. And of course, unsafe cons- uh, content is where there is a risk of harm occurring. If that content was experienced by a person, everyone's risk profile is different. Safeguards mm. can be put in place to help reduce risks. Mm. I mean, what a field day if this stuff gets passed. I know. What I know. a field day for the, uh, well, for the censorship commun- uh, communists. We also have some more feedback, don't, don't we, here? We, we do. So hmm, there was some good comments. There was one from Marlene. What did she say? About ESGs, actually. She's saying, so good to hear you both talk about the ESGs and supermarkets, the telcos, and basically every large corporate. The more you inform the public on this, the better for all of us and understanding how we can consciously stop funding the very companies who work against us via their ESG policies. 
thanks for the great work you do. Well, it's nice to get those compliments, Marlene, and we'll keep it up. Yeah, especially for unsafe content, isn't it? Don't? Yeah, <laughs> we'll be watching yeah. our p's and watching our p's and q's. Yeah, mm. there's one from Anne Marie. Hi, Josh Freed. Hope you are well. I'm sorry, she's missed you, Don. I've noticed yeah. over the past few weeks a few bills have been coming in, such as the natural therapeutics that's come into effect. But I'm really messaging the team about the resource management system reform. I've spent some time going through it and. I've really gained it. Like it looks like it'll be connected to the Treaty of Atangi, Timanawai, which in it is a 70 page document talking about sea and land restrictions. And the bill is very confusing, seems to be never ending. And could you shed some light on this? Now, Anne Marie, I am glad you have looked at the RMA. I have looked at the RMA. And uh, it again seems to be a push towards centralization when you are having even the resource consents being taken away from your elected representatives. There's there's something very wrong there. I also listened to Simon O'Connor talk the other night. He's the national MP, talk about this. And yeah, I I think as, as time goes on, it's we're going to get a bit more clarity on this. But suffice to say, it is what they have replaced it with is a bigger document. And they wanted to tidy it up and make it all simpler to use. As time has shown us, it's going to be anything but. But if uh, this is something you are interested in, maybe Don and I, we can do a segment uh, in a, you know, in a while, Don, on this one. Mm. Yep, look, it's all up in the air too, by the way. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get to see the light of day, uh, this 10 waters and the next phase of whatever it is, the something spatial and planning stuff. Um, we've got an election coming up. If New Zealanders can't see, as I talked about before, the need to have the property right upheld and a part of the fundamental that's missing in the original, on the RMA as it is today, is the property rights uh, protection. Mm. Uh, if we can't get that reinstated, um, it's not worth the paper it's printed not, on. It's not worth the paper it's written on. So, the big pushback's got to start. Um, you know that the privilege that's gone linking that all into co-governance as well. If that ever happened, New Zealand as we know it is is dead. It's yep. dead. There, there's no democracy in New Zealand when that happens. And so, unwinding all of this is going to take really long, very painful. Very painful. So I've made a comment today with colleagues. I said, you know, I can't see any way out of these non-jobs. Where do the people go that have been so used to getting jobs for adding to bureaucracy, but not adding any value to society other than their consumption habits? They're used to perhaps picking up let's say, $75,000, $150,000, $120,000 a year. Uh, if, if all of a sudden they're on the heap of unemployment, uh, what's the good of that? It doesn't work either. So we've got ourselves in a heck of a bind how you get people back into real productive employment again yeah. from the, unpro the unproductive uh, that a lot of bureaucracy is. It is really unproductive and a real big dead, break, dead weight loss or a handbrake on the New Zealand uh, economy. So letting the handbrake go and at the same time making sure the fallout's not too bad is, is going to be hard. 
I, yeah. I don't I don't envy any incoming government that wants to change something because it's going to be very hard and it's up for us all to be really hard-nosed on the next crop of politicians in. Yeah. to make them not backslide when they get in. They have to, um, if they change, if there is a change in October and they get in, they have to be held to account strongly by everyone because it's easy for them to say, oh, when we get in, we'll do X, Y, Z. Well, actually, we know that unless the pressure's on them, they don't. No, no. And that's that's up to us how uh, how yeah. well we engage, because as John said, it's, you know, we have been, as you're speaking about the Tasman District Council's YouTube channel, just 15 subscribers, not many people watching what's going on. So, you know, we we do have ourselves to blame for a lot uh, of things. We can't just keep blaming others. 100% we do. And, you know, everyone is working. Um, you know, the real producing people are working, so they're not going to be sitting around watching a council meeting. And I have to say, Jasper, I've watched one of yours, and I think I was one of two <laughs> watching, so maybe I'm idle and disorderly. Um, but but it is hard to keep up with everything, and you can't blame people for sales. But it's thinking, then, don't on the flip side, it's also hard to turn back what's ah. happening. Oh, much harder. So much it's harder. up to you to choose, you know, which which hard are you willing to take now? Mm. I, mm. I've said this in the past, and it sounds like a very pompous statement, but the battles we don't fight, our children inherit. That very wise. That's exactly right. And, of course, we have been, as I keep saying, comfortably numb for some time. Mm. And I'll keep on saying the same things because I think slowly we are resonating with a lot more people. Yeah. I, I'm heartened that people are starting to sort of talk about these things that you and I talk about a bit yeah. more. Not it's not a it's not a landslide of uh, a torrent of of these. No, sort no, of no, no. It doesn't have to be a torrent. Mm. I mean, at times when we've spoken to people, or Jill and I have gone, you know, about two years ago when you were meeting a few people around talking about that. She told me, Jill Booth, who who actually a bit later in the show will be coming today, and she and I might be going a bit down the memory lane with the United Nations SDGs, the one-trick pony that I am. But more on that later. <laughs> what, are you gonna call them? what are you going to call them again? This is the tricky you know, I could I could actually name those, name the UN segment, the lowdown on the low lives, John. Oh, but I, <laughs> I don't think that would go down too well. That, I, was, a, that was a change to what we've what yeah, we agreed. Yep, yeah, but there's another one option. There's ah, still options here. All SDGs. Right. So the subliminal devious goals. That's how I call the SDGs. They are devious and gosh, like the tip of the iceberg. You don't see a lot of them. But coming coming back to where <laughs> we were going. We've often said when we used to meet people and sometimes, you know nothing would come out of it. She would say, don't need hundreds or tens of hundreds, just need that one right person in a, in a place. And that is so true. Groundswell meeting of last week, middle of a you know wet, cold, windy Southland night, 7 to 9 p.m., had well over 100 farmers in a tow-tow. And that was heartening. I didn't expect anything like that. And it was good to see. But we... I think we need to go to a bit of greenwashing this week, Don. Mm. We've had meddling in the ETS scheme. Meddling. Yep, the meddlers are rampant. It looks like that ETS scheme, the way I read it, is going to have meddling annually if it doesn't fit, if it doesn't work quite the way they want it. 
So what was happening was the GDT auctions, the price of carbon was falling in New Zealand from, I think it was 85 around December. And the last GDT auction, it came down to in the 30s, mm. didn't it? That the, yeah, GDT, is that what? I don't think that's what. The, Sorry, ETS. Yeah, ETS. ETS, yeah, yeah. GDT yeah, ETS. is milk price. Yeah, so, so here you're getting confused. Yes, it did. It didn't make its floor price. So they um, didn't sell yeah, anything. Yeah. didn't work. And so they're now trying to reinvigorate the um, auction in the future by having a even higher floor price, believe it or not, and then shorting the market with units. So they're not going to have as many units that is government held units up for auction. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that this slowly forces up the price. And of course, listeners know that my ideal price is zero because I think the whole concept's nonsense. Carbon is the rural Ponzi scheme. Rural Ponzi scheme. And when you look at this other little bit of uh, a perla that you found um, for us, Jasper, Maori have gone to the United Nations in a last-ditch effort to stop changes to the emissions trading scheme. Yeah, and I'm so why, surprised to see this article on One News. What makes yeah. them think that the United Nations has anything to do with domestic New Zealand policy? David Seawar told me that two winters ago, Dawn, and you were in that room, even though I didn't know of you then. <laughs> I knew of you, I didn't know you. He told yeah. me it has nothing to do, and yet this was on the 19th of Jul- uh, 15th of July, Saturday. Maori land owners are flying to the United Nations in last-ditch effort to stop changes to the emissions trading scheme. The scheme forces polluters to offset their emissions by buying carbon credits, which effectively means putting pastoral land into pine. Why would the Maori think they should go to the UN? The UN has no influence. I repeat, the UN, the United Nations has no influence. We are a sovereign nation. The UN has nothing to say and doesn't meddle. Oh, but just last week, we highlighted that uh, we report to the United Nations annually. We do. We do that stuff. <laughs> How come but, one of our, none of our 120 MPs knows that? But isn't it a classic in here? This legislative privilege called an ETS, it's not a market. It is a legislative privilege, a false market. Market. can be meddled by, with by the minister. But the Maori economy, which I hate using that term, because it's just our economy, I would have thought. They're up. They say that this thing, I'm not sure which uh, carbon price they're talking about, but it's worth an estimated $16 billion to the Maori owners of the land that this guy that's gone to the United Nations wants to talk about. Now, if that's at the current price, um, which I don't think it is, uh, it's, it's a significant um, earner for them. Mm. All created out of privilege and all created uh, okay. for for no real good reason. And now it's been put on steroids. So from mm. a float price mm. of $33, yep. the government is pushing up a single unit of uh, ETS, the carbon price, to $60 Six, now. 60, 60. Yep. yep. They and- are, this is not, you know, I have no problem with Economics 101, willing buyer, willing seller. This is the government meddling and deciding this is what you need to pay for carbon. Even Uh, worse, they have moved the containment reserve trigger price, mm -hmm. which is uh, which is going to increase from the eighty-two dollars it was at 
to $173. So this is when the auction will stop if the price starts going too high because, you know, suddenly everyone will start converting because, hey, the price of carbon has gone up too much. They have moved that. They have more than doubled that from $82 to $173. Sure. sure. And, you know, they, there's plenty of people wanted to go to 250 the carbon price. Mums and dads in this country have no idea the true cost that's going to be sheeted home to them if that happens. Bad enough where it is today, just wait for that that next level stuff. And of course, the as you, I think, or someone called it the Ponzi scheme. It's uh, there's a lot of people getting fat and rich out of this, uh, and I find it abhorrent because I have more principles than some. I I can't blame people that have seen the opportunity and have milked it and and cashing in, as many farmers are now doing. It really annoys me because on one hand, there we were in 2003 um, fighting against this stuff. 2008, 2010, we were still fighting against it. And all of a sudden, it it was all too hard. And all the things that we fought for in the 80s, which was to be clean of government interference in our lives, is back inside the farm gate. And, you know, it it disappoints me that some farmers have decided to play in this this um, paddock, but they have. Can't blame them, I suppose. No, you can't. They didn't. The Mm. incentives were skewed by the government. They didn't do anything. It was something suddenly available, and you can't blame anyone for taking a carrot when it was there for the taking. But James Shaw has said that, you know, even after this rejigging of the flow price and the trigger containment price, he says it's going to have no effect for lower-income households it will only increase household oh. costs by 88 cents to 95 cents oh, per week. That's a scandal that, that is he's talking about. some like very that. handy modeling there, Don. Very handy modeling because um, I've seen modeling from um, different pricing uh, that was significantly more than that. You know, it's in the thousands of dollars per family. So so maybe yeah. that regulator might not be such a bad idea, might save us from unsafe content like uh, these lies we're getting. Oh, maybe. And on the other hand, this just might be the start of the slippery slide into oblivion for this carbon pricing stuff. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. so. I'm hoping that happens. And I'm hoping that people that have been smiling all the way to the bank um, end up with a valueless piece of paper. Yeah, I have no time for this. There was no need for it. It was never hard to plant a tree. It was never hard to do something on your own private property. It was never hard to uh, to be a productive farmer and, and have your individuality upheld and you didn't have to write bits of paper and comply with everybody else. But now it is, and this is the upshot. And I don't like the fact that farmers have bought into it now, um, a bit like a European farmer where you fill out bits of paper and someone puts money in your hand. It just yeah. is, it's fundamentally. They got away from subsidies. You brought bringing them back. It's so unprincipled. So and this week, instead of a greenwash product, yeah. I'm going to talk of a greenwash policy. So the Monash University's Faculty of Art has decided it's going to only undertake responsible catering actions now. So what, what does it mean? It's switching that all its future staff, student, industry, and alumina meetings, conferences, and all, it will only offer vegetarian meals when it is catering. It says scientific research, there's that modeling again, is clear that one of the most impactful steps as individuals you can take is to eat less meat and seafood. 
and our action is in direct to the Monash University's Impact 2030 Climate Agenda. Can we call this uh, Agenda 2030? Mm-hmm. And that lady who had asked us in the feedback, it is everywhere, just it's a multi-headed hydra. So as such, at Monash, we are taking corporate responsibility. There's that ESG again. That's one balance sheet goal, easy to tick off for making a positive contribution to offsetting the environmental impact of academic endeavor. Imagine, did you ever think, Don, that academic endeavors have environmental impacts that can be offset by eating less meat? Well, but they have the goal to say, you will not and cannot and shall not intrude on individual choices, but we are enabling, nudging, forcing people to make better choices. Individuals retain their right to eat, but it's a university's position. If we are catering, you stick to lentils and tofu. Yeah, well, look, I hope um, I hope their students or their the people that work there um, just go down to the cafe down the road and call it quits. <laughs> <laughs> well, the arts, it's, it's the arts faculty there. Uh, I know. So I yeah. wonder if the science faculty agrees. Probably does. Probably does. Because I mean, arts is a science now and science is an art. I don't really yeah. see any difference between the two. And, and and you know, uh, in the COVID um, days, people proved that they are herded like sheep. So, yeah, they'll all follow, no doubt. Yeah, they'll get. Let's hope they get sick of it because, um, yeah, you just get sick of this virtue signaling. I, I think that's a, an odd term, virtue signaling. But ESG signaling, Tom. Yes, We've that's moved right. To ESG right. signaling. Yes, we need to think of an acronym <laughs> for ESG that suits. <laughs> Because we know it's overrated. Yeah, so we are now going to use gl- global boiling instead of global warming. That's our nod to Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, mm. who has declared this is what we have to think about now. We've entered this era. So yeah. if you're cold somewhere, like we are in the South Island, no, please remember you're boiling. Act appropriately. But, we, but we, before we go, we have one more guest today, don't we, Don? Well, yeah, we have, and we haven't given um, some of our feedback um, due diligence, but we'll have to get to that next time. So mm. look, next guest is Larry Blair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and energy consultant from Taranaki. Uh, he gave us about an hour of his time a few weeks ago. So, And a generalist in his talk. Larry yes. is very open to ideas, and I, I love the way his brain thinks. He's trying to put these pieces together and trying to make you think. He's not thinking for you. And so you think about which way we are headed. Right. Because uh, one of the reasons we got him on was because we were asked to find someone to talk about energy security in this country. And mm. there does seem to be a varying um, opinion about how much energy uh, we have, whether it's energy in terms of uh, fossil fuels or or gas or electricity. I mean, it's all energy. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what what are we doing to ourselves? Have we got enough? Are we are we shorting ourselves? If something, uh, one of the supply chains, a ship broke down, are we going to be bringing the country to its knees? Because um, clearly that's a concern. If you don't have your energy security in place, you can stuff an economy. I'm in Marston Point. Mm. We, I don't know how soon the repercussions of that, if any, are going to come in front of us. And I'm no energy specialist here, but I did note that last week, Auckland City to Devonport, the ferries Mm. were cancelled and they were talking of other issues there. First, they said, one headline said, they were 
crew shortages. Mm. Then Auckland Transport said that a 7 p.m. ferry to Devonport and the 7.15 return were cancelled due to operational fuel constraints. And I don't know. I, I don't understand. I don't either. understand a lot of things. Much of this is probably due to someone not even scheduling things properly. I would imagine so. Imagine yeah. if Air New Zealand didn't have its uh, aviation fuel sent down the line that goes from, I think, Whangarei to Auckland Airport. Remember mm. that line that got broken a couple of years ago and it was all hell to pay because yeah. it didn't have security to Auckland? Well, yeah, it's, obviously there's some fuel still going down that line, but yeah, for the for the ferries in Auckland, um, I don't know whether it's diesel or what they would use, but yeah, you'd think it has to, just to be a logistic management issue because I'm sure that yeah, you know, no one else was having diesel shortages, were they? No, no, logistics probably. Mm. And but when they want everyone to be using, you know, public transport, mm. and then you have instances like this. You have the Tihuya train from Hamilton to Auckland, the sustainable one, constantly mm. losing money. Yeah, not that's, that's not of, sustainable. Bit of a train wreck, really, isn't it? Not sustainable. <laughs> you know, we had we had cars I falling off what the you road last. Cars, cars falling off the road last um, Sunday, week ago, and uh, we've got a ship burning in the in the North Sea off the coast of the Netherlands with a lot of cars on it, and that's the second or third one this year. You know, how is it that these freighters carrying thousands of cars all of a sudden go on fire? What's going on? 3,000 cars on that ship off the coast of the Netherlands, 3,025 of them were EVs, the rest were internal combustion engines, but that ship is... Looks like it's toast. Well, that's the second one at least this year. Something, yep, 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 something's yep. not is, right. Something's it not is right. the second one at least this year. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. Let's. Uh, we shall move on to Larry now and have mm. a listen to him. And after that, Jill and I will be, as I warned you, and this mm. is called a warning because I'm pretty sure we have spoken quite a bit about the United Nations agendas over the last, you know. Two years, I remember winter of 2021, beginning those with VFF and doing one pretty much every fortnight for the next 18 months. But uh, we're going to do it, keep it short, sharp and snappy. One STD at a time, devious goals, as I said. And uh, talk about uh, beginning from the New Zealand report card that we present to the United Nations every year. You know, I don't know why we do it because the UN has no effect on our lives, but we still take off a scorecard and we present it to the UN. So that's probably the best place for me and Jill to start. But before that, we will go to Larry Blair now. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our text number remains 2057. Emails at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Please do not, do not forget tonight, midnight is the deadline for you to Object. Did I get it right, Don? Object, Object against the be constructive in your feedback. <laughs> I can't in wait to do this. Free speech to... in the uh, you know online censorship yeah, yeah. ministry they have created. Seventeen of your SDGs, and then I want it broken down into the one hundred and sixty nine sub pillars. So look, we've got a long series of work coming from you and Jill. <laughs> <laughs> we we've got this covered for the next three or four years. Oh, gosh. Hopefully by then the United Nations is toast and we won't even note it, I'm sure, because, you know, none of our policy documents refer to IPCC or UNESCO has no World Heritage sites here and 
We have nobody That's working. World but, Bank's gone. Um, yeah, we have had no one who's served on different uh, committees and different <laughs> UN boards. We haven't had, we don't have a director, ex-director general who's moved on to number two at the World Health Organization, do we? No. Uh, not yet. No, no <laughs> not yet. Oh, the cynicism. <laughs> Okay. I will. I think I need to. I need to cut it short now. I could get yeah, really cynical and jaded when it comes to the United Nations. But thank you so much for joining us this morning. We'll be back in a minute with Larry. Welcome back to uh, Reality Check Radio and Greenwashed with Jasper and Don. And uh, remember to give your feedback at text twenty fifty seven and inbox at realitycheck.radio. And. Today, we've got an, another guest in the energy sector, I mean, or in the energy consultancy sector, uh, Larry Blair from Taranaki. Not quite sure. I think it's Inglewood, but um, regardless, it's good to have you on, uh, Larry, because you're, we're told, the man with the font of knowledge about New Zealand's energy security and uh, and systems. And uh, um, clearly... New Zealand is in a bit of a bit of a spot at the moment. We think we're seriously energy um, uh, rich, but there's a lot of players meddling. So I think we should talk about all that sort of stuff. And um, so anyway, Larry, give us a bit of an introduction on how you've got in, involved in this industry. And welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Don. Um, yeah, so I, I when I left school, I was uh, interested in physics and things and got into, uh, into instrumentation, uh, industrial measurement and control. Um, that was my, my trade and um, basically uh, worked my way through that and developed a career mostly in the oil and gas industry, but um, touched on a bit of marine stuff, some time in the shipyards overseas, um, drilling operations around the world, um, and then quite a lot of uh, work with production activities here in Taranaki at the moment. In terms of right. Gas, so, yeah. did, did you specialize in, in any, uh, well, well, you've just said oil and gas. Have you had any other sector sort of background like electricity and stuff like that? Yeah, um, oh, a little bit with the dairy industry more than anything. I'm dairy farmer's son, obviously. So, used to do, always had a pretty close connection to that, but, um, and, and did do some work with Fonterra at one point um, via Fulton Hogan for a water treatment plant. So, um, yeah. Um, not so much with the energy distribution or generation sector. Um, yeah. And and, and so um, building into this industry, uh, you know, you're, you're now working on your own consultancy firm, I gather, uh, but but you've worked for some pretty big players in the past to build your build your knowledge up. You your, your formative yeah, years. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, these days I'm just mostly supporting one of the local operators here. Um, in Taranaki, um, that's that's going well. Uh, yeah, I, I guess my my interest in the bigger energy equation for New Zealand is just one as a, a concerned citizen. You know, I've got um, I've got children in New Zealand, um, three of them, three young boys, and uh, obviously, I'd like them to have opportunities in the future. And um, and I, I think you know our ability to harness and, and utilize energy is is our key to. Um, prosperity and, and opportunity, I guess. And and I, the picture I see in front of us is one that's, uh, yeah, not not particularly um, exciting, to be honest. Well, not not that it's not exciting. It's a little bit concerning that there's a, a lack of uh, aspiration, I think, and a, and a lack of um, energy security um, 
within a relatively short time frame. Yeah, that's that's the reason we have you on, Larry. Is uh, we had a, a a person tell us that um, you've got these um, observations and opinions, and yeah. we need to hear them. I mean, clearly, a lot of New Zealanders aren't hearing um, alternate opinions at the moment. It seems all pretty much one way track. This this low carbon, low emissions economy, and you know, I've got no problem with uh, with uh, a most efficient sort of uh, energy. Um, mix we have we can have but um currently it's sort of pretty much one-way traffic and are you thinking that we're putting ourselves into a bit of a corner like we're squeezing ourselves into a into a funnel that's going to be pretty hard to hold our economy together with um with less fossil fuel use for instance yeah well i mean there's a huge amount of nuance in the in the energy right we use energy it's a it's a very broad term um but it, it, there's so many different subcategories and and different forms of energy are better than others for different applications, um, and, and it's about using the right tool for the job. Um, yeah, my I guess getting into the weeds pretty quickly, but um, my my big concern is that uh, um, you know we we have a don't have a huge amount of gas reserves at the moment, and and none of the the activities that we're proposing for the future which is you know largely growth and wind um that doesn't work well without natural gas to support it um if you if you look at the generation curve or, or graph over time for wind it's very choppy um it's, it's like a sawtooth you know it's, it's peaks and troughs and the frequency of those changes is high um and you need some you need something that can respond quickly to fill in the gaps, um, and that, that's where um, we're quite dependent on gas. But again, there's a, a lot of these categorization errors. You know, like gas is not just the energy source; it's also raw material, and oil the same, and so is coal. Um, and we don't use coal in New Zealand as a raw material, but but definitely overseas, um, there's quite a lot of that. So. When we when we talk about decarbonising and, and decoupling from oil and, and gas, um, we don't you know we, we don't have anything else that meets the criteria of both being an energy source and a, and the raw material for just about everything that we come in touch with on a day to day basis. So it's so what's the circuit breaker here? I mean, clearly this narrative is is one as I said earlier, one way traffic at the moment. Um, it's just get rid of get rid of coal, get rid of fossil fuels. Um, don't worry about uh, um, you know get get rid of oil and gas exploration. Even don't don't have a suite full of options. Um, narrow the options down. Uh, what's the circuit breaker in all this going to be? Because clearly there is people yeah. like you concerned. Well, I think like the, the the discussion is there um, around you know natural gas supporting industry and, and and New Zealand going forward through till 2050, right? But um, at the moment, I mean, and and this is just public information you can look up on. You know, I think it's um, uh, Ministry of MB uh, Ministry of Business Innovation Employment. They publish um, you know what what we've got in terms of reserves. So our 2P reserves, which is is a combination of um, confirmed um, reserves and predicted reserves, um, is about 1,900 petajoules at the moment for gas, right? Um, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of 
units and the energy discussion, which makes it a bit confusing because some people are talking gigawatt hours and some people are talking petajoules and others are talking, you know, BTU and all sort of stuff. But um, but in general terms, um, we've got 1,900 petajoules of gas there and we're using about 180 petajoules a year. Now, I mean, that and that number was from 2021, I think, to that 1,900. So, um, so we've got this situation where we've got um you know like a seven seven or so year window of gas right and then when you look across the industry sector and you, and you look where all that goes you know kinleith forestry one of our big primary exports they use a lot of gas um fonterra jasperitz um <laughs> dairy industry um you know that's 5.8 pjs of gas there mm. um just for fonterra alone that's a huge amount of energy um and then you've got, uh, uh, you know, food manufacturing in, around the South Auckland area, Huntley Power Station, um, New Zealand Steel still uses a reasonable amount of gas, I believe. Um, yeah, all the industrial users are all contingent on on that um, that supply of thermal energy, basically. And when, when we're talking, and I, I guess this is where my big concern is, is that, you know, when we talk about that window, um, you know, of say 1900 PJs, seven years. Um, mm. what, what can New Zealand build in seven years' time to replace that? You know, like can we electrify our industry in seven years? You know, I the the pipe the pipeline, sorry, excuse the pun, but the the <laughs> the pipeline for infrastructure development in New Zealand these days is, is, is so long, you know, there's so much red tape and um, and, it, and it's very, very, very difficult to um, to do anything really um, on an industrial scale. And yet we're talking about replacing um, gas, which makes up in, in raw energy terms, um, it'd be close to the entire energy production to date in New Zealand, what we do today, you know, just in terms of industrial gas. So um, no, that, I, that I guess, is my big concern. Is, is where do we? How? What? What's the plan? Uh, <laughs> and I'm not seeing one. I, I'm seeing, I'm seeing discussions about importing LNG from Australia and all this sort of stuff. But even that, um, the infrastructure we'd need to do that, even in this time frame, I, I, I can't see that happening either. I, I am seeing plans here, Larry, but they are like a word salad that make no sense. This afternoon came an email from Motor Research, a joint document by Motor Research and MB talking about just transitions. Now, you are in Taranaki, Don and I are in Southland. Both these areas are specifically held up as, you know, the forefront, the for, uh, the leaders in just transitions. I was looking at the Taranaki 2050 energy plan. On one hand, they say, the plan says that gas will be crucial this transition to a low-carbon uh, economy. And then it says stepped conversion from coal to gas to renewable energy results in a much higher cost structure than converting from coal to renewable directly. So what gives? I, I look at these documents and they keep seem to keep contradicting each other. We need natural gas, but it's going to be too expensive. As you say, I don't, I don't see a pathway for us being able to electrify all that fast. And seeing yeah. what's happening in Europe, oh well, I think I think one of the one of the there's a lot of unique um, aspects to the New Zealand equation. One that we're we're an island, right? So mm. 
we don't have any pipelines connecting us to other countries. We can't import electricity. We're not like Germany, you know, we can't rely on France's nuclear system to keep us afloat. Um, we, we, we're highly dependent on what we produce here. Um, and, you know, we, we, don't, we don't import anything in terms of energy other than oil, which, I mean, is 48% of our energy, but that's another story. But um, so what we've got in terms of infrastructure for the gas at the moment is a mixture of onshore and offshore facilities, right? And the operating cost of those facilities is high, um, just in terms of general... You know, logistics for offshore facilities is expensive. Crewing is expensive. Um, maintaining the infrastructure, the asset integrity is all expensive. Um, and onshore, it, it's not as bad, but but it still has you know a reasonably high cost base. So you've now got that um, that production value, that 186, 190 petajoules of gas each year distributed across a reasonably large consumer base, right? But one mm-hmm. consumer. Um, Methanex um, take nearly half of that, right? On average, I guess, plus or minus. Um, and if, if you take them out of the picture, you've got a longer time frame, but now you've got a much higher um, cost base to the consumers that are still using. So you've got just as much infrastructure to maintain, but you're you're putting out less product. Um, so that obviously the cost to cover that operation is is higher. Um, and I think that's possibly what they're talking about. Um, mm. It's difficult to understand, but um, but yeah, we need we need we need gas into the future. Just you know, even the ammonia urea plant. I mean, you know, New Zealand's dairy production is pretty pretty contingent on um, you know nitrogen-based fertilizer, which is um, coming from natural gas as well. And this is why I say when we talk about um, energy, we're only talking about half of the problem. You know, it's, it's the raw material aspect of it as well that's, that's so critical. So, I mean, for, personally, I mean, my big concern is just how, where, where's this gas coming from and, and what's the longer-term picture? Um, you know, it is, it is if, if we want to go to more wind and, and more renewables, we definitely need more gas. You know, we need it. Uh, we need a load follower that, you know, a quick response time and, and I, I guess that's why I was sort of interested in maybe having a more nuanced sort of set the scene discussion around, you know, just the energy um, culture and, and what categories they are and what they do. And just understanding the basic fundamentals because I think the public dialogue is, um, isn't nuanced enough to, to ask the right to, to the authority. So, um, you know, we just talk about energy in terms of joules or gigawatts or something, but how are you developing that? Um, what tool are you using? What's the what's the limitations of the tool? Uh, what other tools do you need to, to mitigate those limitations? And, and it's quite a complex picture, and then it gets into market dynam- dynamics in New Zealand as well. Um, you know, are, are we going to get into a situation like Europe where where we have to pay some generators not to generate so that we can take the wind generation that's um, <laughs> available at the time and then have them ready to go on standby when there's no wind, you know. Um, and that, that that could be multiple times in a day. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, it's a very, 
nuanced sort of discussion. But and, and I, I I don't I don't even know if you know many people even appreciate how how much energy we actually use and and how integral it is to modern society. I mean, it's only 165 years since we've started refining oil, right? So the first oil was, I think, in, um, in the 1850s, late 1850s out of Romania, I think, was the first refinery. Mm-hmm. And and since then, in that 165-year period, we've just had this absolute explosion of economic activity, right? And there's a, a basically a 99% sort of correlation between GDP and, and use of oil, right? In, in nearly all countries across the world. So um, the, the, just uh, it's hard, you know, the, the units make it difficult for people to discuss it. So like I said before, so many different units of energy which make it difficult to discuss. So I was sort of thinking how do you, how do you make it more um, easier for people to understand what, what we're talking about in terms of energy, right? And, and I thought, well, if you can convert it back to manual labour, um, then you can get it a, a conversion, right? So just a, a, a real, this is really coarse, but it's a good sort of representation is that, you know, a person working eight hours a day um, that's happy and fed and well-motivated can produce about 75 watts an hour of power, right? Mm-hmm. So you're working in the field and you're producing 75 watts an hour, right? So that's 0.6 of a kilowatt over the day, right? Now, one barrel of oil is 1,700 kilowatts, right? So that's, you know, if you if you give humans um, uh, some credit for mechanical advantage, so they've got wheelbarrows, shovels, levers, these sorts of things, they're better at applying energy, uh, then, you know, we're still talking something like four years, four and a half years of manual labour in one barrel of oil, which is less than $100, right? Wow. So, US, right? So... So then you consider that New Zealand, on average, if you look at 600 petajoules of energy, is what our what's well, actually it's actually 900. We lose 300 in conversion, but let's just use 600 as an example. 600 petajoules of energy is how much we use. If we convert that to barrels of oil, it's about 100 million of oil a year, which at 4.5 yeah years of labour per barrel of oil yeah that's how many years of manual labour we apply each year, yeah? 400 million <laughs> man years of labour. You know? it's, 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 that, that, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't those, see those, the scale of those numbers blows your mind, right? But, like, you just have to think, if I push my car for eight hours, how far would I get, right? If I put my car in neutral and I try and push it down the road for eight hours, how far do I get versus how far do I drive it if I hop in it and, and just drive it normally? You know, that, that, that's sort of there's a lot. There's a lot of people. We're just so uh, coupled to energy. Yeah, yeah. Look, there's a lot of people who uh, perhaps uh, would want to work less in a day, so their energy output would be even less. Um, and that's the sad part of it all. The people that want to do less and less and less uh, sort of don't understand that there there is tools that can take up the slack, like like um, fossil fuels or electricity or something, and make life better. But what we seem to be doing is putting all this fear of the future uh, around people and putting costs on top of it to make things look hellishly expensive. 
and basically making people um, scared to invest. I mean, there's a lot of sunk cost in a lot of things we're talking about. And uh, what's your assessment about, um, perhaps let's change tack a little bit, to the to the investment profile of um, of those in the oil and gas sector now. They would have wanted to have carried on um, you know, assessing the, the the fields where they might want to drill, do, do exploration and an assessment, and all that has that has that all gone now, or is well, it still in play? So, so we we kind of need to understand how the the block offers work. So, basically, um, prior to to the the current administration um, in the last term, we had the situation where the government under the Crown Minerals Act, I think it was, was obligated to offer up blocks for exploration. And and different operators could take up those those permits, right? And that was both onshore and offshore. Um, and once you once you took up a permit, you're on a timeline, um, a clock starts essentially, and you are obligated to do exploration within a certain time frame. Um, and then if you um, complete that exploration and you've got something that you think's um, worth developing, then you had an obligation to do exploration drilling um, within a certain time frame and so on and so forth, right? And you you basically couldn't bank a block. You had to, if you didn't use it within that time frame for the various stages of, of exploration through the development, um, you had to relinquish it as well as all of the data acquisition that, that came with it, right? So. Um, if you'd done seismic, then you, you gave the permit back and the seismic is how I roughly understand it. Now, um, after the, um, Jacinda Ardern's trip to the G7 and, and the announcement of banning offshore exploration, essentially what they did is um, change that act so that they didn't have to do a block offer. So existing permits you could continue to, to operate in and you could continue to do exploration. And, and to be honest, there's been a lot of exploration in Taranaki and existing permits in the last 24 months, um, a lot. We've probably never drilled as much as we have in the last 24 months. That, um, but that's all sort of in-field development and, and reworking existing formations, that sort of thing, right? So um, what we don't have now is, is we don't have any sort of certainty around um, around the block offer and, and, and what you can and can't do with it. So... What, what's happened is that over historic governments left um, the the red red versus blue didn't really matter who was there. No one never touched the the Crown Minerals Act. So um, from a, a large oil company perspective, you looked at New Zealand and you went, okay, it's expensive because it's a long way away from all the main infrastructure. Um, it's technically difficult because of the geography, um, but there's very there's no political risk, right? Um, there's no sovereign risk. It, it's it's a good place to do business. Um, no one changes the rules on you. You can invest over a long period and, and know you know where you're at and what's going on, right? We don't have that third anymore. piece of the puzzle anymore. So now we've got you know it's expensive, it's technically difficult, and now it's got sovereign risk. You you can't even if the next government came in and said, hey, we're we're really pro oil and gas and and we want to promote as much exploration as we can. Um, the problem is that how do you know that that goes beyond three-year term, right? Will you still have that support, um, or will the goalposts shift 
in the subsequent term if, if you know that that government and and we know from New Zealand political history that no government lasts more than roughly nine years, right? So six to nine years is probably a pretty good run for most of them, right? So um, whereas the investment cycles for these sorts of developments are, are probably twenty to thirty years, you know, like even just to bring um, a new field to market um, would would be a, a long process now, you know, especially if it's not in the vicinity of any existing infrastructure. Existing ones, yeah. So, so Larry, just to back up a wee bit, New Zealand's uh, these rules changed. What about 2018? I think, and um, you know, we've we've talked, they've been in the media and talked about. What other countries in the world? For instance, has Australia got anything like this? Has um, South America got any of these sort of um, bans been, you know, put in front of them, or is it just New Zealand? I I don't really know, Don. Um, I, I, it's a bit difficult, but I, I it was interesting. I was at a um, energy and natural resources summit in Singapore recently, and um, it was interesting that the Indonesian government was was there, and they were very bullish on oil and gas. They were promoting it. Uh, they were inviting operators uh, into Indonesia. They wanted to um, have have more um, sort of development there. And and it was also interesting that the other the 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 conversation around um, Asia and, and Europe on the back of the issues in Ukraine has, has shifted a lot from you know emissions and, and CO2 um, to more around energy security. So um, you, and you're seeing some really interesting developments. I think it was at uh, I think it was Finland. If I remember rightly, there's one of the Scandinavian countries recently is, is wants to um, include nuclear in their renewable sort of category mm-hmm. um, of energy. You know, so so there's a, there's a lot happening in that space in terms of peak. It's been a big wake up call, you know, with the for particularly look, you know, everyone that's looking at Germany and going, wow, you know, look look what happened there. You know, they've they've basically they had the, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I'm not German, but it's the Ingenfield or something like that, which was this uh, push to have more renewable. And I think they got up to something like 20%, 28% of their um, their domestic electricity mix was was renewable. Um, and on the back of that, they'd phased out, um, with a, you know, moving to phase out nuclear. And then obviously you've lost uh, a huge amount of energy coming through that Nord Stream pipeline plus the phase out of the nuclear and then the wind obviously is a intermittent source so it's difficult um, and now they're importing a huge amount of um, energy from France you know through which is nuclear generated out of France yeah and and you only have to look at their per capita or per GDP or whatever metric you want to use it emissions and and France is is doing much much better um, so so it's it's interesting, right? Yeah. So they've sort of snookered themselves. Has have have has New Zealand snookered itself? Because uh, just talk, you know, what we've covered so far, we haven't covered the closing of Marsden Point or the mothballing of Marsden Point, and what risk that may have put into the New Zealand security of supply of of um, of fuels. Are we at a risk of snookering ourselves? Do you think, and having energy shortages? Um. That's a that's a difficult question. I, I'm I'm not quite 
convinced that Marsden Point creates any energy security risk. Um, it creates um, certain product security issues. But, um, you know, like bef before, while Marsden Point was operating, it was importing crude oil, right? So we were still subject to the nuances of shipping, the global oil commodity markets, um, you know, securing supply of crude oil, that sort of thing, right? But mm. now we're doing that same process, but we're doing it across every um, every distillate product, right? So now we are, you know, and, and we, we always, we did import these distillates as well. We, at Marsden Point only ever um, produced a percentage of our consumption. It wasn't all of it. Um, yeah. But um, we've lost a lot of, we've lost, a lot of flexibility as a result of that i think you know you're seeing um issues in the airlines at the moment with um, conductivity in the in the aviation fuel and that that's i'm not 100 percent sure what's causing that conductivity issue but um it's it's likely moisture um water or something like that probably so um running those sorts of products through back through the a system again and, and cleaning them up was an option we would have had previously that we don't have now right so so you're talking the products, for instance, the jet fuel that goes, I think, from from yeah. Marsden Point down to Auckland Airport and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, that sounds serious. Um, but yeah, how 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 do they how do they clean that up then if it's uh, if it's got um, contamination in it? I'm I'm not sure how they're doing. That's a that'd be a, interesting to talk to someone that actually has some insights around that because yeah, it is interesting. I know. Um, it was creating a lot of issues for New Zealand because they were actually had to carry additional fuel to, you know, they would normally fuel at certain locations, but they couldn't, um, they didn't have supply in those locations due to this this conductivity issue. So they were actually carrying extra fuel so that they could fly, say, to Auckland or Wellington and back again, or I think it was more the regional airports was the problem. But yeah, they were basically, instead of taking fuel at those points, they were, and, and then obviously that creates, you know, it takes a lot more energy to fly that plane, right? Because it's heavier. So, yeah. so yeah. just as an aside, um, do you know how much uh, revenues are earned by royalties out of uh, energy sources that uh, the Crown has uh, access to the royalties from? Is is it a big big paycheck for the for the Crown? Um, not off the top of my head, I can't tell you what the number is. I'd I'd be able to, you know, it'll be there and 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 the the government's financial reports, but, but it's a, it would be significant, yeah. Yeah, so my point being, um, you know, the government's made these rules about um, reducing exploration and, and uptake of uh, fossil fuels, um, but yeah. on the other it, side of it... It's going to be a, a significant big, loss of a tax revenue stream, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so where does that uh, new, new revenue come from? It's going to come from the mums and dads and the businesses of New Zealand, uh, regardless, in another way. Um, for, yeah, for, yeah, I imagine taxes and GST and the like. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. So, just we haven't talked about. Uh, I know off off here we talked um, about the battery project. Um, uh, I, I assume you're talking about Lake Onslow, that sort of um, yeah, yeah. hydro uh, pumped hydro um, concept. What's your thoughts on that? To give us supposedly uh, energy security because uh, a lake is a big battery, really. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they call it a battery battery project for a reason, right? So what, what they're trying to do, it, it recognises that the more renewables you put on the grid, the more storage you need, okay? To, and the storage is required to deal with the intermittency, right? So, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a lot of solar, you've only got a, a certain generation window. 
Um, if you're going to have wind, like I've said before, even even when it's reasonably distributed, it's still you know across geographically distributed, it's still quite um, it, it, it's very fluctuate. It fluctuates a lot in, in nature. So I mean, it's it's quite interesting to actually have a look at at the output graph of a, of New Zealand wind farms and. And you'll see how how many peaks and troughs there is even within the course of a day. It, it's you know multiple, um, you know up up to hourly in some cases. So um, that you, you need to be able to buffer that somehow. And I think that's where the New Zealand Battery Project comes in. So they get, they're expecting to have an over oversupply um, of power at certain points. And at, during that time, what they want to do is they want to pump from a low level lake up to a high level lake, and then um when when you've got a glut uh, uh, sorry a, a deficit then you'll you'll take that water back down through a turbine generate power and put it back into the grid that that's the idea it's a big kinetic battery is essentially what it is but um uh, i i don't know uh, probably uh, uh our listeners aren't probably familiar with the Thermodynamics, which which sounds complicated, but it's quite simple, and and you probably most people learnt about thermodynamics when they're in third form physics or something. But it's basically you know the the concept that in it, in, every time you change energy, there's um, losses, and it's not really lost. You know, energy is never lost; it's just transformed. But transformed. it's how many things do you transform it into that aren't useful to you? So. Um, and then become then following on from that is the idea of entropy, right? So entropy is that these losses, for, they're not lost, but you know, in terms of actual motive force that we're looking for, they're losses. Um, they become more chaotic over time, so they become bigger and they become more broad. There's more of them. The, the number of different transformations is ever increasing, right? So when you talk about um, extracting energy from a moving fluid, which is a wind turbine, and then you're converting that into, um, you know, a motive force, which is spinning an alternator, which takes it to energy, electricity, then you're putting that electricity into a grid, and then you've got transmission losses, um, you've got a DC-AC conversion if you take it from the North Island to the South Island, then you're pumping water uphill, you've got fluid losses, you've got mechanical losses in the pump, you get it into a lake, you've got evaporation losses to the atmosphere, um, you know, just the water evaporating. Then you're running it downhill, um, you've got more fluid losses through the tunnel, friction losses. Um, then you've got mechanical losses in the turbine generating the electricity and then you're transmitting it back into the grid, right? So um, yeah, how much of the actual energy that you started with do you actually store and how much can you deliver to the grid at the end of the day? You know, it, it's... And, and each time you're doing that, you've, you've got to build extra infrastructure to compensate for the, the amount that you're losing, right? And then you've got to maintain that and operate it and the capex and the return on investment. It becomes a really expensive way to do things. Um, you know, whereas, uh, and that, that's, that's why we, you know, it's, it's so important to have these discussions so that people can understand some of the nuance around these energy concepts, right? Like, you know, if you've got gas coming out of the ground and it's literally got a choke valve, right? That's all it is. It's just a, a valve that regulates how much gas you want. And you can literally turn it on or turn it off depending on what you need. And hydro hydro can load follow quite well as well, you know, so hydro dam. But, um, you know, so you need all of these things in the mix to compensate for each other. And, you know, the, the more energy dense something is, 
and with a lower amount of entropy, the better quality it is, I guess, as a, as a general concept. Um, yeah. And the cost associated, they're talking of 15.7 billion. So when I listen to you talking about all the losses that are going to happen. Yeah. And there, you know, there is so much yeah, uh, that, up in the air. Yeah, and that's only the that's only the um the the Lake Onslow um lower lake tunnel generation piece of it. That doesn't include the infrastructure that you know, the wind infrastructure and things like that that are gonna um input to this you know like there's a there's talk of a 900 megawatts i think it is um wind farm off of offshore wind farm off mm -hmm. the coast of taranaki here of south taranaki um Gosh. again like i mean what's what's the cost of that i i, I don't know i haven't I, i'm not privy to any figures or anything but i i can only extrapolate from you know like north north um sorry eu European Union, the average cost of offshore winds about 3.5 million euros per megawatt. So, you know, add that, times that by 900, um, and then Ouch. you're up to sort of $8 billion worth of investment there. But that, that's assuming, I mean, that's an established market with established infrastructure and, and everything. So you gotta, you'd have to add at least 50% to that for the New Zealand context just because we don't, we don't have an offshore wind industry here, so we'd have to develop that as well, you know. So... Um, what's the cost of that you know and but nine again what is 900 megawatts you know in terms of of energy it's, human it's, labor um, yeah yeah so it's not a huge amount when you when you start looking at the total um exactly you know, they, what's, uh, i think one petajoule um sorry uh sorry one gigawatt hour is only about um 0.03 petajoules or something so um that's not you know when you're when you're converting electricity back to to actual total energy it, you know 900 megawatts sounds like a lot but it doesn't you know it's a lot in terms of electrical the electrical context but it's not a huge amount in terms of the actual total energy context for the, and, the and this is what they call the term have the goal to term just transition this is what they call justice reducing social inequities transitioning uh, transitioning us all to power <laughs> yeah. that we can't yeah. afford i mean listening to the figures i'm wincing yeah but this, this is this is an interesting thing right so when we talk about energy and, and the different forms, it's not apples for apples, right? So you can't necessarily substitute, you know, oil, let's mm. say, or coal or gas or any, with electricity. Um, they're, they're different things and they do different jobs and they have different functions. Um, you know, like oil in itself is a, it's an amazing thing, you know, you can you can put a barrel of oil into a refinery and all these different products come off, you know, right from the, the light, um, butane type gases that flash off initially right down to bitumen at the at the other end and everything in the middle right so you know kerosene gasoline diesel um, you know heavy um, bunker crude all this sort of stuff this all comes off and and you've got all these products right and and diesel for example you know it's it's so energy dense um it's stable at atmospheric pressure and temperature you can put it in a coke bottle if you like and take it up into the bush and put it in your um, tractor and you know what i mean it's just the the, the flexibility of that product and, and the um just 
ease of use is, is phenomenal, you know, and then the diesel engine itself is, a, is an amazing invention, you know. It's, it's well, I, I can't just half a year high torque engine that powers society. I can't help but throw in a barb right there because seeing all that uh, talk that's coming of 15-minute cities and high-density apartments, possibly we are not expected to go to these places where we need, you know, portable sources of fuel yeah, with us. We can just <laughs> stay in those whatever uh, chicken coops that are meant for us. It's, it's amazing, right? Because, like, you um, you know, you transition, right? Like, you, you can't do it without the products that you're allegedly transitioning away from, like, you know, the mining alone for copper, let's say, you know, like this, the yield rate of copper is quite low these days, you know, like all the, the really rich deposits are, are gone, you know, and I, I don't know what the numbers are, but, you know, you're moving a huge amount of ore and then you're crushing a huge amount of rock to get, you know, copper. And, and that's a massively energy intensive process, right? And, and nearly all of it's diesel powered, you know, like mining trucks and, and diggers and, um, you know, big loaders, and then you've got uh, usually gas or you know power that power plants running crusher units. You know, probably thirty megawatts, something like that, to to break down rock and and to micron size dust that you generate the copper out of. You know, it's um, well, we are and, when... and moving really dense chemicals like hydrochloric acid and things. You know, it's all diesel. Yeah, life. Uh, there's not many people that. If you don't have to think about it, you don't think about it. But life would be really miserable uh, without all the things that you've just talked about, um, because it's all around us every moment of every day. The use of these products um, uh, from a fossil fuel base, perhaps, is all around us. And so this yeah. term, just transition, is um, has got me exercised because um, I know that uh, and, and I noticed looking at the Taranaki Just Transitions document, the last one is adaptive or adap adaptation. Uh, well, actually, uh, the open market would have adapted to things quite well, quite good without a lot of consultants' reports, um, in my opinion. And so you do have to wonder why we needed a new way of doing things when, in fact, we're still going to have to have a fair chunk of the old and we're going to adapt and and just let things evolve. Why is it that yeah. there's been this um, political push globally to destabilise and then do this reset that they will talk about? I mean, because I don't see any gain in any of this stuff except for confusion and um, basically the meddlers are getting their way for a moment. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, mean, I can't really comment too much on the geopolitical um, <laughs> political sort of motivations here. I, I mean, obviously, there's a narrative around um, emissions um, that that's that's driving a lot of this, um, and and the transition ideas and in a nutshell is to move away from carbon intensive fuels to so-called renewables, right? But um, but it, it's not realistic in, in a lot of ways and in and, and the way I, you know it's, it's not realistic even from um, just looking at raw materials for you know you, you just can't substitute oil you know when you want to look at the polymers and the, you know just all of the spin-offs that come out of that you know plastics and um, nylons and all these synthetic materials that are all derivatives of oil, you know, like it, we need it as a as a raw material. Um, 
even at a minimum, right, even if you could just switch off the energy side of it and just use it as raw material, you still need a lot of it, right? Um, so, so again, I, like people talk to me about the just transition and I'm like, tr but transition to what? Like we haven't really even defined what we're transitioning to, you know? It's like we've reached a fork in the road and there's multiple different ways we can go, but none of them's really going to the, a, a certain destination. It's, it's, it's quite a... Yeah. And, yeah. and what are the underlying assumptions? Are the underlying assumptions are that, that we'll continue to have more energy um, or is it that we just maintain what we've got now or is it that we have to sort of a, decrease a, our output, the quality of life? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'll, put, I'll put a proposition to you to just to consider, right? Um, mm. You know, and this is something I, I, there's a, a guy called Nate Hagens. I, I sometimes read his stuff and, and he came up with this idea and it, it is, so it's not mine, but, um, but it, it's interesting. And it is, um, what is money, right? What is money? This is a question. And, and, and then you have to say, well, money is a claim on energy. And mm -hmm. if you, if you look at any, you look at anything that you buy today, right? Um, the major component of it is energy, but the energy has been so abundant and so just so much of it we're, since, you know, like I say, for the last 165 years that we, we just take for granted the embedded energy in something, right? Like most things are actually free. Like if you put a seed in the ground and it grows, that's a biological process of the, you know, nature, photosynthesis, harvesting sunlight, that's it. So where does the value in that that plant, like that, that grain, come from, right? It comes from um, putting more energy into it, right? It means you're putting some nitrogen-based fertilisers in there so it grows faster, and then you're harvesting it with a tractor so your productivity is up, and then you're transporting it to market, and you're adding value to it by turning it into bread or, you know, like it's actual it's actually energy that's the, the main component every step. Yep. about everything, right? So. Your money is a, is a claim on energy, right? And debt is a claim on future energy, right? So will we have enough energy in the future to service the debt that we've got now? That is a, you know, that's a more fundamental economic question. I think I'm right in these numbers, but, I, you know, since 2017, I think the crown debt was something like $5 billion, Now it's $95 billion. Mm. Just in the in that period, like what what economic activity do we need to have to serve not only service that debt but like diminish that debt, and then how much energy does it take to have that economic activity? Right, like you know what I don't know how we will substitute diesel, you know, in all our tractors, for example. You know, if if agriculture is our biggest primary export earner it's how do we get around the nitrogen fertilizer problem and how do we get around the diesel problem if we're going to decarbonize it's Straight interesting away, you know, it's, it, 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 you, you posit great you posit great questions and in fact in previous interviews jess breed haven't we sort of talked in a different way the same question yeah. um it is about energy use it is about energy it is about um the use output. of output what yeah, do we do yeah yeah. Yeah, I mean it's that, productivity, right? Like you, and and that's what energy gives us. It gives us productivity, you know. It's taken us from 
0.6 of a kilowatt for our one day's efforts to <laughs> we've got four years of productivity and from our one day's effort now right so yeah but but you know mainstream society no disrespect um they've been almost encouraged to be distant from these sorts of discussions the disconnection uh from these really hard connect uh conversations uh are obvious to me. I mean, I didn't hear, hear any of this sort of stuff when I was going through school, and that's 50 years ago. So, um, and you know, you know what they I, hear the discourse now, if we are really at very trivial stuff rather than pondering stuff like this, yeah, yeah. we'll need to. Like to say, you know, when, we, when we started this, the, the discussion levels are they're, they're too high, right? Like, you know, it's too abstract for. We can't we can't have a meaningful discussion about energy when we're going to abstract it into you know, just topics about, you know, just transitions, which don't have any real definition around them or or even what are the assumptions that underline that or, you know, what is that? I mean, it's a, it's a slogan, right? But what is the slogan? What does it actually mean? Um, you know, and, and how are we going to implement this? And what's the plan and what do we need to do to get there? And what's the opportunity cost that comes with that? And, you know, we are, we're not, There's we are more not questions and answers, so I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. We, I don't even like the name, you know, just transition. Is it is it the word just as it refers to justice or it's just transition? You know, we don't <laughs> care how you do it, just transition. And on, on that note, you know, we have uh, the New Zealand Future Energy Centre, which is now named, as is want in Maori, Ara Ake, right? And I googled the meaning of Ara Ake. It says, wake up. Well, <laughs> do we need a wake-up call or what, gentlemen? That is very aptly named. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've definitely got vulnerabilities emerging, definite vulnerabilities. The, the gas is one. Um, the import importation of various different product streams that we don't produce here now is another one. There's a, there's a huge amount of, of vulnerability there in, in terms of uh, energy security. Yeah, so just before we we wrap, um, question I'd like to ask you is about uh, the hydrogen electrolyzing in this country and the viability of it, uh, and the and actually the energy output for the energy input. Um, like if you've got an electrolyzer, uh, electricity, big amount of juice going in. What's what's the sort of conversion factor for hydrogen? So it's interesting, right? So this is another. This is one of these categorization errors. So for a start, um, people think that hydrogen's an energy source. Right? It's not. It's an energy transport medium, right? It's something you embed energy in and then you transport it, right? It, now, it has um, the quality that you can burn it, right? So so it's seen as a substitute for natural gas. But the, one of the, the big problems for hydrogen, well, there's a there's a couple of problems here for a start, right? The first thing is there's two ways to make hydrogen at the moment, right? One's the electrolysis, like you mentioned, um, and the other one's for form natural gas, right? Now, the problem there is that both of those things, electricity and natural gas, we have existing markets for, we have existing distribution networks, and, and we can put them to work, right? So um using them to create hydrogen which doesn't have a distribution network doesn't really have a market yet um mm -hmm. and has it's a niche product for um chemical you know and, and manufacturing processes essentially at the moment right so 
Um, so why would you convert into something when you can just put it down the cable with electricity, right? That's the first question. And then there's, we come back to that, the, you know, we were talking about um, thermodynamics, right? So it's not thermodynamically efficient to produce hydrogen. Um, you know, I think at best, I think you get about 60%. Um, so if you, let's say, put in, you know, um, one megawatt of electricity into electrolysis, you'll essentially get 600 watts of hydrogen, right? Um, so then you've got that at atmospheric pressure, so then you've got to compress it, which is further you know, energy taken. You know, so what, what have you actually got to, to deliver at the end and then the actual calorific value of it um, is... There's no value you know, proposition. Energy density, yeah. So... Uh, it's, it's another one of these losses, losses, losses type scenarios, um, which makes yeah. it expensive. So at, you know, at this, at this recent energy summit, there was some, quite a lot of analysis on, on hydrogen and, and, and they were talking about 80 to $90 per million BTU, um, which is when you convert that back to a barrel of oil in terms of energy, it, it's like a four or $500 barrel of oil. Um, so, so it's expensive, right? So, um, how much are you prepared to pay for um, for low emissions? Um, and, and again, how how much embedded oils in that whole process? You know, if you're going to build it from a wind turbine, how much actual embedded coal and oil? You know, there's a lot of concrete, a lot of steel, a lot of carbon polycarbonate, a lot of carbon fibre in a, in a wind turbine, um, a lot of copper. You know, these are all there's a, there's a huge amount of embedded hydrocarbon and um, or Based energy in, in those that infrastructure to start with. So um, and they've all got a, a lifespan as well. You know that's that's the other thing. You know they're not infinite. Once you've built them once, they just last forever. It's they've, they've got a, a service life. Yeah. Uh, one more thing. I have we've previously spoken to a commentator from the US where they have been speaking up and you know trying to push back against those carbon capture pipelines that are go going through vast swaths of America. I see Venture yeah. Taranaki is trying to investigate carbon capture mechanisms in New Zealand. Yeah, so the CCS is the um, there's there's lots of different ways of doing it. Like so, I mean, for a let's just say hypothetically, a um, if you were a, um, a gas producer and you had a, a reservoir that's depleted, you could potentially mm. um, you know you you could bring on a a gas stream that has a high CO2 content and then you can separate the CO2 out of the gas stream and you can put it back into the well and you can send the, um, the gas to market with, with a lower CO2 content. So that, that's sort of one aspect of it. Then, then there's these, the, I've, I've seen um, some of these sort of, you're going to extract it from the atmosphere and, and then put it into, the, into a, it's all, they're all based on putting it back into a, into a, into a reservoir, but um, how much energy does it take to do that is the question. And where does that energy come from? Um, and what's the cost of doing that? that yeah. These are the questions, right? Like, like, how much are you prepared to pay for energy? Well, That's the, and on top you know, of how that. Much uh, and, and coming back to that whole, the more we pay for energy, the more we either have inflation or we have a drop in productivity. And it all comes back to that whole question of how do you service that future um, claim on energy, which is essentially what debt is, right? Yeah, mm. so, but a good angle. 
and of course, yeah. um, you know, those of us that have followed it um, know that the world is a greener place with more CO2. Uh, it's not something to fear. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, we were in a CO2 drought not many years ago. So the world is actually greening if, uh, by all, all uh, studies now it's greening. So this carbon capture and storage or taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, it's just, it's just seems so nonsensical to Especially me. Especially when we still haven't been able to eradicate hunger or, you know, have sanitation to all the, most of the parts of the world, uh, the third world countries. This is what we are focusing on and we call it a just transition. Amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 frustrating in in some ways because always a lot of these things are never, you know, I mean, like the ETS. Let's say you're an oil and gas company and you've got a, a gas reservoir and you want to the ETS incentivizes you to um, reduce the amount of CO two in your gas. So CCS could actually be a quite a good opportunity there to actually you know through an emissions trading scheme mechanism right so it would incentivize there's a commercial incentive to use your own capex um, and your own money to um, reduce your tax burden by sequestering or not sequestering but um, capturing and storing your co2 right but when you start talking about extracting co2 from the atmosphere there's no commercial mechanism there. I mean, who's going to pay you for that, right? So what happens is these things are um, they're all, they're almost always public funded, right? So it's a lobby group gets in front of the government and they say, hey, we've got this great idea. Can we have $100 million for a front-end engineering feed study, feasibility? Um, and they'll, they'll, you know, start a, start a business and pay themselves director fees and, and all this sort of stuff and work on this feed. And, and then two years later, there's nothing to really show for it, right? Because it doesn't have a, you know, it's difficult to, to create a commercial basis for that to exist on. Um, that's self-sufficient. So it relies on public money, um, which is, which is, which is not ideal for the taxpayer, right? Mm. Yeah. No. And so it's sort of what we observe. Yeah, look, um, we've covered a lot of bases tonight uh, and um, there's lots more. And sorry, we're so, well, I'm so basic about this, Larry, compared to your knowledge, uh, but we hope we've got it to a, a level that um, our listeners are able to understand. Um, but we do have a problem, uh, I think, being assured as Kiwis that we do have an energy secure future and at the right cost, not some ridiculously overinflated cost. And um, you know, maybe that's paraphrasing too too much what you've said, but I think that was the sort of tone of, of the discussion. Would that be right? Yeah. So, I mean, how, how would you sum it up? Yeah, I think definitely definitely we need a mixture of sources, right? And I, I don't think that probably the, the key issue in, in ahead that I see is, is where is the, um, where's the natural gas coming from in the future um, to to buffer these other you know things and that, that's just that's not just an electrical problem that's a, a wider um, mm. thermal energy thermal sources problem right so um and then what would be the imp economic impact if we had to import that in, in the form of lng and what's the pipeline to actually you know what's the timeline to be able to develop the infrastructure to do that yeah mm. um i just think that we're we're running headlong into a situation where we, we don't have sufficient reserves to 
maintain the current productivity levels or production levels um, that we have in this country and, and we're also running out of time to put something else in place quite rapidly. Well, that's the warning. That's the warning from Larry Blair and uh, listeners. Uh, let's let's see what develops. We'd love to have your feedback. Um, so uh, give us that on inbox at realitycheck.radio or on 2057 via text. And Larry, thanks very much for giving your time uh, freely. And uh, we may have you back because I think this is going to be an evolving story. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Jasper. Thanks, Larry. Nice uh, talking to you. Hello, and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and I have an old mate back here with me, Jill Booth. Welcome, Jill. Hey, Jaspreet. Nice to be talking again. Nice to be. Did we ever stop talking, though? Well, <laughs> no, no, actually, we've never stopped talking. We um, we, we talk a lot, but yeah, and it's good. No, it is good. So today, we are going to specifically focus on... The United Nations. Surprise, surprise. And why is that? We've been getting, Don and I have been getting a lot of feedback from people asking us that, can we give them some concrete examples of Agenda 2030? Something that, you know, if they pass on to their representatives, it can't be just dismissed as being a conspiracy and so on. And uh, yeah, this we seem to get at least a handful of this request every week. So we thought, what better place to begin than us, New Zealand, our report card that we've been turning in voluntarily to the UN since 2019. Jill? Yep. And, um, you know, it, it's great that the that the news of the United Nations um, and, and its influence within our, our, our government, within our councils, um, is really getting out there. More and more people are waking up to this. So there is something called the People's Report, um, and it, it is a voluntary thing. We, we set ourselves goals. So the 17 sustainable development goals that the uh, United Nations has given us, we then check those off year by year. So you can find this. This is actually um, a 134-page PDF, which is why nobody knows anything because who's going to sit and read through 134 pages? But it's called um, it's called the People's Report on the Agenda 20 uh, on the 2030 Agenda and Sustainable Development Goals. And this one was done in 2019. Now remember um, our then Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, she actually pledged that these goals would come into New Zealand's legislation um, and we would be the first country in the world to to do this. So, yeah, and I I'll... remember, I remember, Jill, these being launched with a lot of fanfare. There was an article on stuff that I can still find. NZ Turnson Development Report Card to the UN, emphasising the well-being Framework. This is on stuff, July 18, 2019. And it it said that even though we still have a long way to, you know, go and achieving all the 17 goals, which the United Nations, the United Nations, the unaccountable, unelected global elite established for us plebs as a replacement to the Millennium Development Goals in 2015, because the Millennium Development Goals were nowhere near, uh, 
you know, fruition. So we swap these. And these now cover pretty much your entire life. Cradle to grave, as I would call it. They do. They do um, encompass your entire life um, and, and not just your life, your your livelihood, your lifestyle. Um, yeah. at, at, you know, it's such a far-reaching tentacle. And we've been speaking about this for such a long time. Um, there was that really funny little bit on James Short. Did you see Undercurrent? At, I did at, not. At, not oh, yet. Not, it's hilarious. It's the funny, funniest thing on radio. But anyway, James Shaw got punched in the eye by somebody and he said that he couldn't understand what he was talking about when this person mentioned um, the United Nations. So there's still, there's still a big thing out there that this is not true, that the United Nations do not have a, a very strong um, grip on our country and our, our policies, our politics central government and our local councils, but but it's very much there and, and you can find it. Um, hmm. To be uninformed in this day and age actually is a choice. So if you'll bear with me for a minute, Jasper, I'll read out from this report, um, and this is directly from the report itself, it is on page six, and it's got the purpose of the People's Report is to provide a range of views about Aotearoa New Zealand's progress on the 2030 Agenda and Sustainable Development Goals. These come from a range of prospective NGOs, which are non-government organisations, okay, community organisations, researchers, unions, businesses and young people. They reflect a diversity of views and activities and demonstrate that the collaboration across generations and across government and the business sectors and civil society is essential if the vision of more than a, of a more just, equal and sustainable world is to be achieved. The report was prepared and the final draft was published prior to the government's presentation for its first voluntary national review to the United Nations. Um, and I have a bit of an issue with that. I mean, why are we reviewing anything to the United Nations? I know. Haven't they had enough scandals already? Between, you know, food for oil and very dubious secretary generals and the peacekeepers and sex scandals in various areas. Seriously? Well, Who are they? Well, you know, the truth is that everything the United Nations has touched over the last 70 years ha has turned to custard. Um, they've been in Haiti for 25 years, and Haiti's got a, a, a capital city of some uh, uh, 1.5 million people, and they still have no running water or up-and-running sewage system. You know, it's, it's very nefarious. So these goals... So they start off, the 17 of them, and um, the first one is goal one, and that is to end poverty in all its forms everywhere. Mm. And, and when you stop and think about that, it is absolutely unachievable because um, none of these goals take in human nature. How do you ensure... That everyone, everyone, how do you legislate everyone to be at the same level of economic prosperity? Can that actually be done without? Yeah, yeah. Know? They 
they did communism? it in Russia. <laughs> they did it in <laughs> Russia, and they made everybody equally poor, miserable, or dead. <laughs> But you can you can do it, Jill. When, as you mentioned, a whole lot of NGOs, researchers, aka academia, and private businesses are all pushing along towards the same direction. I remember, and I note from the Stuff article that when this report was released with a lot of fanfare in 2019, paying homage to our Lord and Master of the UN, it was presented alongside the Sustainable Business Council of New Zealand. Its head at that point, Abby Reynolds, said, "Now there's a whole lot of signatories who are going to be reporting on this, and we are going to be." At this point, she said, "We have 106 signatories in 2019 that represent 60% of New Zealand's emissions." So she's she is calculating the number of signatories in the terms of the percentage of emissions they represent, and nearly a third, she says, as uh, a third of our private sector GDP. As far as the New Zealand Sustainable Business Council. is concerned is aware there's nowhere else in the world where such a significant percentage of a country's emissions or gdp have committed to ambitious voluntary action so not people a country's emissions no. or gdp have committed to the ambitious voluntary action abby reynolds head of the sustainable business council said when this was launched well you know when when you know like you you know about the stuff and and mm. we've been studying it for quite some time the 17 sustainable development goals absolutely um depend on the lie of climate change and that's why emissions come into it everything everything that these goals have been set out to do is to is climate change is the driver of all of them a- and and that's just a it's just a trojan horse It is indeed. It's a, it's a seriously shocking um, Trojan horse. And I, I'll I'll correct you there, Jill. If you listen to Antonio Guterres over this weekend, we are no longer allowed to call it, you know, global warming. It is now global boiling, because that's what the UN has said. And all <laughs> this weekend just gone, we have had our, you know, news readers and uh, our public interest journalism media. talking about just his words antonio guterres says the world has entered a new new era of global boiling the un has declared hottest temperatures and they began that news article with saying since 1830 or something in the last 180 years i'm like right that's a blip of anything between you know 4 to 6 billion years of the earth's existence but that is it that is the un controlling your life it is and and without climate change um without the climate change rubbish um the, the truth is that all of these goals would fall to pieces but you know you only need to look at the very first goal to to know that you you're chasing rainbows and unicorns um you cannot this actually and all nothing this wrong in changing these chasing these unicorns and you know rainbows as you say <laughs> these goals are very nicely packaged very nicely gift wrapped and they are they are pretty innocuous sounding when you look at them but i can't help but you know literally compare them to the 10 planks of uh, communism well they are you know is plus seven more 
um, as, as times goes goes on. But I always remember when I was a kid, um, I came from a, a pretty, you know, Judeo-Christian background. <clears throat> but I always remember my mother saying about um, if you want to sell something to somebody, you 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 must make it attractive. Mm. And, and this is what these goals do. They they sound incredibly attractive, but when you <clears throat> When you unwrap them, what you actually find is a steaming pile of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and underneath it all, it's really bad. So, like with goal one, ending poverty in all its forms everywhere. The translation of that is the re, you know, to redistribute wealth and resources, and to make the super rich wealthier and the middle classes poorer. Because if you're going to end poverty for everybody, it means that those that won't and can't must be subsidised by those that can and have. Mm. You know, and, and it means that that we need to. Um, it means that, that that money needs to be stripped out from people who have who have worked. Um, it, some people may have inherited and not worked. Um, but it's still their money. Mm. But but now we need to make a massive shift from from the money from the middle classes into the poorer classes that then make the you know through the um, the whole system of consultancy NGOs systems welfare offices all the rest of it a growing mm. of government to make this problem go away. It actually takes your money from the poor to the rich. And we have thrown this term about, you know, child poverty around Jill massively over the last few years. We even have a minister, Jantinetti, for uh, Minister for Child Poverty Reduction. Now, coming from India, for me, child poverty meant street kids. Yeah, no so adult kids backup. living. Yeah, no, no adult backup, or at the most, living on construction sites or agricultural job sites, and no permanent home, and literally children of the street. We don't have that here. And the UN itself said when we released the first voluntary scorecard that New Zealand has 0% of people living on less than US dollars three uh, a day. But 10.9% people live on less than half of what the wider population receive. UN says New Zealand needs to improve the score. What? Yeah, what? <laughs> less than so they they have an issue with the fact that 10.9% of the people that was in 2019 live on less than half of what the others receive so this is income redistribution but i'd, I'd really like to drill down into cuz you know we have politicians on both sides for me it is the same side red or blue but we have we have some politicians saying we are doing really well on child poverty and others saying we are doing really poorly in child poverty. For me, I would go down to the data released by uh, MST, Ministry of Social Development, and their benefits fact sheet for June 2023. Yeah. And looking on that one, it's a 15-page report, uh, listeners, if someone is interested. So not, not that voluminous, not as voluminous as the People's Report at 134. But it says that at the end of June 2023, last month, just over 350,000 people in New Zealand, which is almost 12% of the working age population, were receiving a main benefit. 
in yeah. 2018, June 2018, because this report from MST is pretty good. It is comparing six years, all ending at the June quarter. So in June 2018, about 277,000 were on a benefit. June 23, five years later, 352,000. Yeah. So we have gone up by over 70,000 people on a main benefit, and we consider the success. Yeah. And then, you know, there's that old saying, there's lies, damn lies, and, and statistics. Um, and all these statistics with when it comes to benefits can be manipulated and changed, and um, there, there can be fewer people receiving the benefit, but then a lot of those people have, have been moved into maybe receiving a health benefit. Mm-hmm. rather than an unemployment benefit. Um, but, you know, it, it, you, can't, you can't justify the rising amount of poverty we have in New Zealand when we have taken a pledge to an unelected organisation to reduce it. No, you, you cannot. No. And, and the truth is you can't hide it. And ever since we have um, embraced these, these sustainable development goals, Quite frankly, our country has started to turn to shit quite quickly. Yep. And, and, and you may have to take that this, bit out. <laughs> there's, a whole, <laughs> there's a whole lot of things that uh, the Ministry of Child Poverty, or what do they call themselves, Child and Youth Wellbeing, because that's a website, childyouthwellbeing.gov.nz. They say that what are they doing to help improve the lot of children so summary of yeah. actions by government to reduce child poverty in 2021-22, $5.5 billion family package was introduced, yeah. increasing the incomes of 330,000 families. So that's $5.5 billion with a B. With a B, yes. Jill. With a B. Of a country with just over 5 million people. And then, and then you take out the people that are not earning big money so they're not paying um they're not paying tax back mm-hmm. so so that that involves a large part of your beneficiary and your lower income people and it also involves ewe which pay no tax at all um, so they they are they are putting things that we didn't think out towards child poverty but like uh, the government says successive increases to minimum wage have also helped children the housing, the power, uh, winter energy payments will all help child poverty. But number one, as I said, I have a problem with the term child poverty here. Child poverty for me is children living in a household. They're still under a roof. They're children living in a cash-strapped household or a source-strapped household. The MSD's fact sheet for June 2023 that I just referred to, if you scroll down to the page 14 of that, their hardship assistance graphs tell a story. Yes. A a story that is uh, pretty sad. So June 2018, we were handing out 321,000 hardship grants worth $88 million. $88 million? In the five years since, ending June 23, we have doubled those nearly to 601,000 grants. But the worst part is the value of those grants has gone up to 
148 million that's a quarter of a billion yeah. in the june quarter so and what are the, what are those markers jasprit so those markers come under housing health food grants so they have food. given they've they've gone in and they've explained us uh, the reasons for this hardship assistance which has nearly tripled from 88 million to 248 million in the last 5 years yeah so food food you know, grants and, and emergency housing special needs grants these were the two key types of grants that are giving and yeah. they the number is not good well you know in a country that produces enough food to feed 40 million people to to have people go hun- hungry in new zealand is um <clears throat> is really atrocious but again to you know coming coming back to what the you know who's running these goals with the united nations um it is a marxist program and and the marxist socialists you know whatever you want to call them um you know the only thing that they do really well is grow poverty and misery you know that they're extremely good at it and that's what they do and they do it under all sorts of nice guises of of handing out money and and being supportive in so many ways but the truth is you know you scrape underneath that um they're here to grow a social welfare system so that more and more and more people become dependent on the government a- and you know it's only a rabid dog that bites the hand that feeds it so most people will become quite compliant and they will also vote for who's feeding them at a time of record high inflation we have nearly 12% of the working age population not working yeah. 70000 more kiwis are out of work today <clears throat> and on a main benefit than they were in the quarter ended june 2018 the hardship grants have gone up 300% in value and doubled in numbers just plain numbers and the food grants and housing shelter grants emergency housing grants make up the bulk of it looking at the food grants imagine people needing to come to the government for money to buy food it has gone up from something like 14 million in june 2018 according to the ministry's of social developments benefit snapshot for last month from 14 million to 33 million that's the amount of money people ask for yeah. to be able to feed themselves and housing that's gone from 10 million in the quarter ended june 2018 to 87 million for the quarter ended june 2023 eight times what are we doing we are creating a massive dependence on the government and for me socialism is always a place where the only viable employer literally a lord and master becomes the government because private It's enterprises have failed yeah. and that they do it in interesting ways jasper you know like um when i you know when you think of poverty you think of people with nothing mm. but a lot of people that are living in poverty in New Zealand they have a TV they have mm. sky they have an automatic washing machine um and what how socialism works is they keep moving the goalposts of poverty so that a lot of a lot of people not all it's very hard to generalize and 
and I've I've lived in some very very poor places in in New Zealand, so I've lived and experienced it in my life. Um, but people are living in a more luxurious poverty than they ever have I, now because we keep moving the goalposts to to what it means to be poor. So you in New Zealand, you can be classed as living in poverty. You can have a state house. You can own a car. You can have a cell phone. You can have Sky TV. You can have an automatic washing machine. Some places you are provided a dryer. You know, so you, you have. But at the end of the day, Jill, they are living in motels. It's been very interesting now, for me in the last two three years to see how mo- motels, who owns those motels, who actually pockets the money. If you like, if you are trying to tell me that a child. being raised in a motel with all sorts of sounds and noises outside at all hours of the day is a good is a good uh, oh, no. you know environment absolutely not we are letting these children down and yet we somehow fudge these statistics and we have ministers gloating about the fact that how well we are doing on the un sdgs whereas yeah. these hardship grants their quantum they're tripling in value and new zealanders being dependent on the government for food and housing is an absolutely an embarrassment to what should be a first world country but it is, uh, it's terrible but a lot of these a lot of a lot of um places have been you know people living in motels living in their cars um living in state houses um a lot of that too has been caused by council land banking so council has has tied up a lot of land and not let it go for development you know and and again too it's, it's a very deliberate and now we are letting it go for social housing aren't we yeah and now we're letting it go and that social housing is going to be very compact um it's certainly um not you know the answer the answer to what they're bringing to the problem they created is going to create more problems yep um, and just, so yes this little piece here um just breach it comes from the people's report mm-hmm. so i'll just read it out very quickly um its government policy it's got the new zealand government to fully engage in its commitment and obligations to the global 2030 agenda and the sdgs within the treaty of waitangi partnership model and through meaningful engagement with civil society and through overseas development aid programs specifically um particularly in the pacific region you know so for people to say that the united nations is not is not involved in our government you know go to this report <laughs> we've got obligations to do this and we've got obligations to end poverty in all its forms everywhere but only if we do it the way the united nations wants to do it and as the ministry's you know? june figures june figures tell us they are anything but reducing poverty they are actually literally yeah. perverse policies with and you know you can keep saying for a while that oh silly policies and that's a stupid policy but there comes a time i think when you need to stop looking for a reason and treason and look at the writing on the wall and realize that you know this outcome that's in front of us the perverse one that was the intended one all along all but, along yeah all along So thank you so much Jill that was i think a good uh, taste of getting back into the UN talks uh this was SDG 1 ending poverty in all its forms and Jill and I will 
start analyzing the 17 goals one by one again as the weeks go on by. Jaspreet Bhopparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And with that, we come to the end of this week's Greenwash show with me, Jaspreet, my co-host, Don Nicholson, and our guests today, Finna Phillips, Larry Blair, and of course, Jill Booth. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. But before we go, a special announcement. There's a sneak peek of something being officially launched this evening. Of course, as all our listeners would know, out here on RCR, we are on a mission to revive honest media, to report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan, our breakfast host, says, it's a good mission. But to make that happen, we need to grow. RCR needs to grow and grow fast. And that means we need your support. The great news is there's now an easy way to show your support by becoming an integral part of RCR and receiving some great benefits at the same time. Our RCR Foundation Members Club is being launched. Aside from a sense of pride of joining something meaningful, something bigger than all of us, and something that makes a true difference, Foundation members will enjoy a host of exclusive benefits one of which will be a special event happening this Sunday. Learn more about the membership at www.realitycheck.radio and make sure you have joined our mailing list on RCR2 to stay up to date. Once again, we thank you for listening in. We thank you for your support, your comments, your feedback all this time. And we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. <laughs>